Score last-minute sports, concerts, or live show tickets for up to 60% off on GameTime. Simply download the app, create an account, and use code POD10 for $10 off your first purchase. That's code POD10 for $10 off. Terms apply. And welcome to another Grapple 90s flashback show. I'm Benno. I'm Joe. And I'm JP. And join us again. It's our. It's now our. It's JP. You've got your certain grapple duties. Uh, you're the women's correspondent. You're the Mexican correspondent. There's a long list. Uh, we've now got. I think Martin is officially our Grapple 1997 correspondent. Uh, Martin, the great Martin Bushby, a British rest experience. He joins us again to finish our trilogy of 1997 and uh, look at ECW. Martin, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me back on again. Although I'm assuming it's going to be just us three listening to your opinion on the show, Benno, and nodding in agreement. You know, because. We've never taken a back bump, so we can't really have an opinion on anything, can we? I agree. Fair enough. Everyone should listen to me. That's that's the way it goes. <laughs> me, me with my fucking eight matches or whatever is apparently my opinion's worth more. If you've uh, if anyone's paid attention to Twitter today, I think that's the. Uh... <laughs> well, you can critique ring announcers as well, at least Ben. I think you've done that. Did that once. Refereed yeah. once. Trying to think. I, I was a cameraman once as well. So Martin, you know, I can uh, I can get into your world as well and talk uh, talk that side of things too. Yeah, apparently that's that, that's that's the rule we learned today on wrestling Twitter. That yeah, apparently uh, you're only allowed to talk about things if uh, if you've done it. Um, so, so yeah, so hopefully that legitimizes JP's feelings on builders then because he was a builder for a bit. Was he? <laughs> Were you a builder for a, for a very brief? In period. 1997, he was definitely building. <laughs> I want to say it was in 97. I was building it. Was it that summer? <laughs> No, it was 96, Joe. Uh, okay. It was Good summer, that. You were 96. Bloody hell. What, me building? Yeah, that wasn't one of the highlights <laughs> of the summer. Thanks for that. Oh, any stories from building in the 90s or any of that, JP? Um, probably not suitable for this show. They were, they were just, just complete liars. There was one bloke who he said he'd murdered someone. I was like, "Why the fuck are you here? This isn't making sense." <laughs> Wait, what? Absolute bullshit, merchant. That bloke, that comedian, Phil Cornwell, who who had kind of done that freight. It was at Highbury Corner, where this place was a massive place. Cash in hand, obviously. I mean, if there's two things you've learned about me, and it's something, two things I'm trying to pass down to my kids. One of which is is watching pirated films. The second of which is non-declaration of earnings. And this very much so sort of carried on at that stage. Um, yeah, he, this comedian, Phil Cornwell, he was the only one who went, oi, no. It was like a 90s thing. He walked past. They shouted at him. They would quite regularly wolf whistle. You could hear them. I was digging a hole in this front room. It was a bleak experience. Not well, nearly as much fun as the guy on Alan Partridge. The guy who was the other DJ on Alan yeah. Partridge. Dave yeah. Clifton. Yeah. Dave Clifton, yeah, Phil Cornwell. Yeah. Yeah, he looked very sheepish because he just because they were quite big, these blokes, and he was just like normally he would have shouted "fuck off." Well, I think he looked up, saw them, and just sort of sheepishly went, and then just sort of walked past. Did you feel confident critiquing the standard of cement mixing and like I don't know the way the brick was laid after a couple of weeks on site though? Because you legitimately could critique that because you had been a builder for two weeks at that point. I don't know how in-depth my analysis of cement mixing would be, 
But then none of us have been to the ECW arena, so we might as well just fucking hang up this call now. <laughs> in that case, <laughs> I, I'm re- talk about that. I'm reliably told, JP, as long as you don't uh, present your opinions as facts, you're all right. I don't know how you do that. I don't know if you, I think you have to start and end every sentence with "in my opinion," but yeah, I think that's the uh, that's the lesson we can learn from old uh, Nathan Cruz today. Well, in my opinion, this is going to be a good podcast. <laughs> I'll yeah. take it. Uh, Martin, do you have any good 90s jobs? Uh, where, where are you working in the 90s? My first job was in the 90s. I worked in an off-license when I was, well, 15, <laughs> oh, six, 15, 16, far too young to work in an off-license. And I was, you I was, serving food? Yeah, I was asking kids older than me for, for ID. That, that was the level of power that I had. <laughs> It's pretty good, to be fair. They'd, they'd try and, like, they'd send in, like, the pretty girl. That had happened a lot. And I'd be, like, a 15, 16-year-old, kind of terrified to ask for ID. This being, what, 1999. Um, and being being scared of girls just in general. Uh, and you get the, the, the like, the pissheads of the area coming in and trying to grift you and tell you there were deals on that weren't there. It was a trial by fire. Yeah. This all uh, getting your first job. Or wherever it is you live. This was a little and mate, a little bit more uh, upmarket than that in the in the local ah, okay. bargain booze. The job that the very first job and not the last that I got sacked from because my mate just I was bored one day and my mate came to visit and I just let him in the back and we just had a bit of a chat. We put some rap music on, chilled in the back, and then the uh, the boss watched the uh, the video footage and uh, and sacked me. Uh, apparently, when my mate came in, he had a bag with him and they were convinced he'd nick some stuff. He didn't nick anything. Um, but that was enough for an uh, irresponsible 16-year-old me to get sacked from my very first job. Understandable, to be fair, looking back. And I was only paid about £2 an hour, so I think, I don't know if that's more or less than what JP was getting for the building, but, you know, it wasn't a great loss. I don't think I would have been getting too much above that for my shame. Again, it was all in cash. Um, and I was shit at it. Just be secure in that knowledge. I was a terrible builder. <laughs> and like we dad... went to school, we've had the same job as you, Benno. So when we were sort of like 15, we always used to wait till his dad had gone out or whatever and then nip round to the shop and he'd sort us out with everything we needed. Oh, that's a good hookup to have. My mates didn't yeah. really do that with me. I don't think my mates were cool enough. None of my mates were drinking or, or smoking until I was about 24. That's when we all kind of came out, out of our shell finally and started going into the city centre for nights out. Uh, develop late. Blame wrestling. I was spending a lot of time indoors. I, I did. There is a job I haven't gone into. Joe knows it. But um, I did work in a night. I worked in a nightclub in yes. North London. When you were like 14. Um, I was 15 when I started. <laughs> I was only joking as well. Amazing. I was a barman when I was 16. It was called Manhattan's, and it was at Palmer's Green. Joe will know it, because we went to a gaming convention, as Joe likes to do. Um, and I was pointing it out to all the students as we passed by it on the North Circular Road. I was like, I used to work there. It's, it's now a massive Turkish supermarket, Didn't we which is infinitely better. Didn't we walk past it once before one of the Super Strong styles as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were, we were coming from your dad's. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so and I've been was, past it twice with you. There's a lot of stories there, and they did have it used as a strip club as well at one point as well, um, where I got to meet Lindsay Dawn McKenzie. Did but you? I'll leave her wow. this. Look, that's, a, gonna... that's a 1997 barnstormer, that one, mate. Very Dean much... Oldsworth, Jarvis Cocker, Jesus. Happened before then. It was, this would have been, I want to say 95 <laughs> for this. I would have been about 17 at the time. So you were early on the Lindsay Dawn McKenzie uh, kick, eh? Um, not really. It was just very surreal working behind a bar while all this was going on. And, like, my parents knowing it was a bar and a club, and they didn't know that was going on. 
and I wasn't fucking saying. So, like... <laughs> it's all making so much yeah. sense. You know, I, I, Dirty Tuesdays, all the other stuff I know oh, about you, JP, yeah. that we can't talk on air. You make I've... me sound like I should be fucking profiled in Minecraft. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Ask Jeff Ogden, he'll tell you. No. Well, I think when we when we talk about some of the ladies on this show later on, we know where JP found his kind of penchant <laughs> for the likes of Francine over the years. Put it that way. Yeah, uh, it. Is this the same club you worked in where Brian Harvey and Daniela West yeah. were hanging out one night? Yeah, yeah, same club. They came in. Did they offer you offer you a cheeky line at all? No, she had a septum then. Very nice. Very uh, okay. <laughs> he had, he had ba- <laughs> Brian Harvey was wearing a baseball cap. He had he had a big baggy jumper. He was nice enough. Did he have a jacket potato in his hand? Because that was his addiction after the coke, wasn't it? Jacket potatoes. I didn't know that. He ran his own head over. Rewind that back. (laughs) How do you become addicted to to jacket potatoes? Because it's just potato, isn't it? It's just potato that you put in the microwave if you're feeling lazy. Obviously, you can do more with it, but it's just a a potato, isn't it? Hooked on it. I get enjoying them. I, I mean, I like a jacket potato, cheese and beans as much as the next person, but bloody hell. He was so like, desperate. To, that's how he was so desperate to keep hold of his jacket potato. He ran his own head over in his car, apparently. Wow. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You never heard that story? I've yeah, never heard that. I've never heard that. Someone no. even made up a fake blue plaque to put in those, you know, like those plaques they have where something like really uh, famous happened. Someone even did a fake blue plaque where it happened and put it up saying this is where Brian Harvey ran over his own head chasing a jacket potato. Oh, fuck. You know where he's from as well, don't you? Wolfstone. Wolfhamstone. And Wolfhamstone will be coming up later in the show, won't it, JP? Oh, it will come up in the show, yeah. Because connection to ECW with Wolfhamstone exactly. with those shows they did that JP went to in. Was it like, was it 97, JP? Yeah, 98. Uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. You did. Those are the Dirt Bike Kid ones. The Dirt Bike Kid. Wow. And Rob Van Dan and Sabu were on it. Oh, Fun. can I just do a quick shout out while we're on this? If anybody knows where the diet bike kid is i really want to interview him for british wrestling experience so if anybody can find out what's happened to him then you know let me know or let these guys know because i really i think you'd have a really interesting story somebody oh, yeah. put on twitter didn't they i don't know if it was was it directly to you martin when you asked before or was it just a random tweet i'm sure i saw someone say he turned up at a random icw show as a fan yeah it was uh, was it eddie sideburns maybe you said that now, um, Jones, what's this? Is it Phil, Phil Jones? Oh, say? right, okay, yeah. And he yeah. said no one recognised him. Mm. It looks a bit like Noel Gallagher in that picture he put up of him. He <laughs> took a picture of him at the show, didn't he? It's like you said he randomly turned up at an ICW show that's a few it. years back. That's the one, yeah. He's a, that's, a, that's an independent wrestling legend. That's the that's the man who I've, I've mentioned on this podcast before. I think I was trying to get a ticket to that, JP, or at least trying to find out what the deal was, and I rang the number at the back power slam. And it was a mobile number, and I was, what, 14 and didn't know any better, and rang the mobile number at two in the morning thinking it was a box office number. <laughs> and me, uh, my mum got an angry phone call the next day from him telling, telling, telling her off for uh, whoever rang his phone at two in the morning the night before. It was just me. I was just trying to find out what's it. If you don't want people to call your number, don't put it in Power Slam. That's kind of how yeah. I see Yeah, he's, he's got no case there. What a fucking idiot. I was in so much trouble. My mum was fuming at me. She's like, what, why are you ringing this number? You're not going to this wrestling show in London. Who do you think you are? Yeah, she's fuming. <laughs> Who do you think you are? <laughs> uh, to be fair, I was like 14 at the time. I don't know how I thought I was going to get there and back. Like. There was plenty of seats available. I'll tell you that much, Benno. Uh, there's probably about 100, I want to say about 150 people. And you've been in that hall. Well, we've all been in that hall when mm. it's absolutely packed. 
and, and really hot. And sweaty. And, and very sweaty. Yeah, this wasn't really like that because obviously it was February. <laughs> and I'd missed, and, and I'd missed um, the, the 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 girl I was going out with. I'd missed Valentine's Day for this. Of course, she was Valentine's Day, they must She was annoyed <laughs> because she was like, "Oh, you know, it's Valentine's Day." I was like, "But you were working." She worked in Pizza Hut. I was like, "You were working. What difference did it make?" It was all the last tube out for fuck's sake. JP, so, I, yeah, I, I love that. Um... 20, 23 years later, no, 22 years later, this year's Valentine's Day, you brought your current oh, girlfriend yeah. to RevPro at your call, so you haven't changed at all in 22 years. Fuck <laughs> no. Uh, I'm in the right here, and I'm sticking to my guns. And when she, comes, when she comes around to yours, you usually end up eating a pizza as well, don't you? So not a lot has changed at all. She complains <laughs> about the amount pizza of bloody pizza she has to eat at your house. That's bollocks. I've cooked many a time. I'm not fucking having that. Did you used to get much free pizza out of that pizza art job? A few, um, but I don't think we were going out for too much longer after that, so it was somewhat limited. I enjoyed it while it while it was there. Free ice, ice, back fa- free ice cream factory as well while you're at it? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I knew some people who worked up at the Odeon nearby, and you'd go in there. You'd also go in there at school weed. Again, that's a different story for a different time. <laughs> but you could also have some ice creams as well. I was the shiftiest bastard in 97, 98. I really was. <laughs> and not much has changed in 22. No, you're a lovely man now, JP, 22 that's years later. Absolute fucking chance. <laughs> okay, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> you, you fucker. You're about a year younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, amazing. I mean... Going we... back to this nightclub you worked at, is it still open then under a different name? No, it was called Manhattan's. Right. I'm sure if you Google it, you can find out Manhattan's Palmer's Green. We need to find oh, out I what own... it is now. Oh, they were owned by a shady group of characters. I was paid cash in hand, unsurprisingly. Um, <laughs> I'd actually started working there when I was 12, bottling up on a Saturday morning. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> I was bottling up on a Saturday morning and then I went home. But... Bought copies of Empire magazine with them. Bloody hell, I was still doing a paper round in 97. I think it was like my last year at school. And then I went to go and work in um, an hotel kitchen. And that was that. But yeah, I think I was still doing a uh, paper round for like seven quid a week in 97. <laughs> Bloody, uh, JP was hanging around with a craze by the sounds of it. <laughs> I reckon knowing you, JP, just sent, did you spend all your money on all the wrestler magazines and videos? I bet you did. I did spend a fair whack on that. I, I didn't need for those kind of WCW tapes when they came out. Mm. I always had a few quid to be able to buy them. So I was like on top of it. Um, probably not Boots. Probably the big WH Smith that's in Wood Green at the minute. Wood Green Shopping City. We would have been queuing for Primark this weekend. Fucking idiots. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Yeah, more of that and uh, the Nathan Cruz yeah. stuff on the actual spot like this week. Um, we'll keep it 90s for now. I want to hear more about Walmart's, mm. JP. Um, <laughs> in general. <laughs> um, oh. But you also had a... Sorry, go on. Oh, go on, make on. No, 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 no. I was also going to say it had a massive statue of John Lennon outside at Benno. You would have appreciated it. Um, Yeah, it was fucking huge. I think the owner had paid a fortune for it. There was no particular reason why, (laughs) but it was there. Didn't connect to the nightclub at all. And there was a pub, and then there was a nightclub at the back, and I worked in the pub on a Saturday daytime. Mm. Basically started from 10. Just watched effectively grandstand quiz shows. Um... Uh, and what else? 
Yeah, it was a golf machine as well there. And a pool table. So I'm pretty shit hot at that by, by that stage. Uh, so much why did you start running the numbers for everybody and stuff then? <laughs> it sounds bad. Like Bart Simpson in that episode where he gets taken in by the mafia. That, that's all I can picture as yeah. JP tells the it, story. It didn't It didn't go Henry Hill. Yeah, that. Henry Hill. Yeah, that's, that, that's the better example. Uh, amazing. Uh, what, what would um, I'm guessing then, JP, if you were... Uh, Making your way out to uh, to see a dick by kid promoted shows, you were actually mm. following ECW at this time. Like, is that is that yeah. a, well, how? Like, were you, were you getting tapes? We because uh, I know the ECW TVs wound up on Bravo, and I know they had like, they had like a thirty minute version. I don't know if anyone else remembers this, where it was like it was definitely showing nineteen ninety seven stuff because I remember following the Raven and uh, Stevie Richards feud on there. And definitely mention of Barely Legal, but I've got a feeling it would have been a year or two later. I don't think they were up to date. Do you remember? Do you have any memories of that, or were you just getting tapes? I was just getting tapes. Mm. So um, at that point in '97, I had gotten tapes. I was reading about ECW, and then I got a big bundle of tapes at the start of in like January 2018. Mm. And those tapes they had Barely Legal, Hardcore Heaven, and November to Remember. So it had like kind of those three pay-per-views for me to start off on, as well as kind of uh, there was also I think it was Born to Be Wired with the horrible Terry Funk Sabu barbed wire match. I don't know if any of you have watched that. That's thank you, Seven as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's awful, horrible, awful. horrible match. Just watching two lads bleed and get caught up in barbed wire. There's uh, nothing to be entertained. Now I know why you don't like GCW. Yeah, it's kind of it was it was horrible to watch, and I'd also been watching some of those like King of the Death match stuff, but they seemed kind of like quite honestly comically playful compared to this, <laughs> which wasn't a match. It was just Sabu getting caught up in barbed wire, and then the story at Hardcore Heaven. He's got a big like kind of um, like taping all up his arm, where apparently mm. he had hundred stitches, and then you get the crazy glue story from it when he uh, because of that. And then he wrestles the triple threat the week later. Him and mm. Terry Funk. Fucking loons. <laughs> that could be ECW summed up, really. Oh, yeah, that's it. I mean, what about you, Martin? Like, my knowledge of ECW in 97 will be purely... I think the reason as when we've done these 97 shows, and I always talk about it to me as my favourite year in wrestling, because, as I keep saying, WWF maybe wasn't quite as strong as WCW, but as we saw from Canadian Stampede, there were very interesting things happening. WCW was probably at its height, um, going into Starcade 97. Uh, and ECW was still good, but maybe there were some warning signs. But at least to like to me in 1997, being like a Power Slam reader, which was the first year I started buying that, like ECW looked like the coolest thing on earth. And like I, I remember being a fan of like the Triple Threat just because they look cool in photos doing the pose with Francine. And generally being a 13, 14 year old, being a fan of Francine and Bueller anyway. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the Rod, that Rob Van, Dyke, uh, Rob Van Damme guy looking cool, Sabu looking cool. That was kind of like my intro to it. Uh, maybe seeing the odd pay-per-view on DSF. Um, it's all a bit vague for me, like this period with ECW. I know I've seen it. It's just hard to pinpoint when. Were you like JP? Were you, were you like tuned into it at the time? Yeah, I think uh, the first write-up I saw in Superstars of Wrestling, obviously, the precursor to Power Slam, I think it was uh, Ultra Clash 93. I think that that was one of the first oh, well done, ECW that. events. Yeah, um, I think it had King Kong Bundy on it randomly. And then um, Eddie Gilbert was obviously booking it at the time as well before he fell out with everybody like he always does. And then uh, after that, they reviewed The Night the Line Was Crossed in 94. And then 
the front cover of the magazine had this image of uh, Terry Funk, Shane Douglas and Sabu in the three-way sleeper. And it was like, wow, what's this? I've never seen anything like this before. And then, like, virtually everybody else, I got the tape from Rob Butcher. Totally blown away. I mean, you weren't seeing anything like this in 93. I know it doesn't live up to much now, but at the time, following along, it, seemed, it, it really did seem, like, trailblazing, really innovative, really exciting, uh, I think I got Heatwave 94 as well. I had the Funks v. Uh, Public Enemy in a barbed wire match. Uh, that's another one blew my mind as a kid. But, so I mean, going back to what JP said, I, mm. I, I don't think I mind the younger guys getting wrapped up in barbed wire, but it's never comfortable seeing old man Terry Funk do it. And they even had it at that uh, ECW WWF show, WWE show, didn't they, uh, more recently? Um, yeah, so I think it's safe to say ECW were very influential and inno- innovative. But a lot of this stuff doesn't stand the test of time. That's why I was very interested in your guys' opinions, you know, not following along with it and seeing this stuff sort of after the fact. Mm. I think you're, yeah, you're the that... best candidate for that, aren't you, Joe? Like I say, I was kind of vaguely aware of it and following it. Um, but I think for you, it was later, wasn't it? Yeah, for me, the first time I would have heard of ECW would have been when they did that. Do you remember when Taz, went, when he was in WWE, went back to ECW mm. and won the ECW title from, was it Mike Awesome? Yeah, that was like yeah. a, then, a, a, a WWE guy versus, WWF guy versus a WCW guy in an ECW ring, that wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he turned up on SmackDown, I think, with the ECW title and him and Triple H did a match and then Tommy Dreamer turned up. And Triple H squashed him. I didn't know him. what ECW was. I was like, what is, what is this? And then I remember looking some stuff up afterwards and finding out exactly what it was and seeing like images online of all sorts of like mad shit and at the time loving a gimmick match in the early 2000s, I suppose, coming off a sort of late 90s attitude and thinking, oh, I want to see some of this. Mm. But then not being able to see it and then finding tapes in HMV and a mate of mine had a couple of ECW tapes he had a massive wrestling collection I think we were only really mates because we were the last two wrestling fans standing at school uh, once everyone went off it I remember seeing it was that stair is it stairway to hell match with Sandman and Sabu or stairway to heaven oh, match yeah. or something yeah stairway to hell yeah yeah and I remember him telling me about how crazy it was and how mad it was now it was better than the uh Cactus Jack versus Triple H match uh, uh, um, Royal Rumble 2000 and then <laughs> watching it and being like this is fucking shit <laughs> like this is bad like, even at 13, 14 or whatever I was I kind of knew it wasn't that good and I could sort of, I didn't know what ring psychology was, I'd never heard the term but you you know when you sort of you sort of get wrestling and you sort of understand things about about it hmm. i could tell that it was just a bit of a mishmash of kind of moves and there wasn't a lot of i suppose psychology there about knowing that was what wasn't present so for me it was like oh i don't think too much of this but then wanted to see more and then i remember uh once the, i got a decent broadband connection i used to be on forums where lots of ma- individual matches were uploaded so i remember downloading a lot then and watching them and then getting really excited when uh wwe did the uh rise and fall of ecw documentary and seeing quite a lot around that time but always yeah. thinking it was never what was kind of promised or what i was led to believe it was so for for me, I've never really been an ECW fan, uh, but I, f- I do find it kind of fascinating as a promotion 
and what with its place and sort of the history of the wrestling business, especially during the nineties and how it innovated and basically led to the attitude era. So Mm. as relevant as it is as a company, it's not a company I've ever ever had any great affection for, if I'm honest. Interesting. Cause, cause I was kind of in a similar way, kind of after the party, like I said, catching those half hour Bravo TVs. And then they had a a second run on Bravo, didn't they? Where you got a longer version of uh, ECW TV, uh, probably going into what two two thousand that would have been. Um, was that when they were doing the ECW on TNN? Yeah, I believe it was that yeah. that was showing over I here. Definitely saw a couple of those around my mates late night on Bravo. I remember because I remember yeah. seeing RVD. I mean, I, I was going to say, is it Anarchy Rules the PlayStation game? Mm. I remember that coming out, and I remember it was RVD on the front cover because I remember being uh, aware of who he was mm. because of seeing a couple of them on TNT on Bra- the TN- TNN show on Bravo late at night, but. Yeah. I don't know, not being that fussed about it. That definitely rings a bell. Going back to that game, though, on on the Saturn, Mm. it was on the Sega Saturn, I think, and um, I always remember super crazy on that. You know how um, wrestlers and fighters had, like, levels, and his was, like, higher than anybody else's, and I always wondered why, whether, like, super crazy knew someone involved in the game, and he was like, oh, yeah, make me higher than everybody else, sort of thing. (laughs) So his, like, leveling was, like, 99 or something, you know, similar to what Triple H should be in a WWF game. (laughs) I reckon the stats are written up by a smart mark, that's what it is. Because I yeah. like, I reckon like Finn Martin's write-ups of like these uh, these ECW guys and the way the internet talked about them as it it's a bit like the way we would have talked about Ring of Honor guys in the mid two thousands. Joe, like these were these were legends, your, your Tajiris and your and your super crazies. Like I believed Rob Van Dam was the best wrestler in the world. Like during this period, like oh yeah, because like what I my fandom kind of came in that. Again, seeing those TVs and then like maybe 99, 2000, starting to buy videos at my local HMV. And they were they were expensive. They were like 20 quid and they were dubbed. Not unlike the uh, the versions of the shows that are on the network. Um, I assume they were just dubbed for UK release because you get things like New Jack coming out and obviously you wouldn't get natural born thrillers. Instead, you get this, this just, just really droning but kind of memorable instrumental that's going to be burned into my brain for the rest of my life going on for like 15 minutes or so. And that kind of killed it a little bit, but I loved it. Like I was bang into it. I was thinking this is, even though I was, I think the people who were big ECW fans, maybe like yourself, JP and yourself, Martin, who lived through it, would kind of say this was after the horse was bolted. I love those 98, 99, 2000 shows. I'd be going to any time I had a bit of money from like my, my job at the off license or like from a Christmas or a birthday, I'd straight away get the bus to town and buy like three different ECW videos. And the trick was, and I've definitely mentioned this on the podcast before, is that I'd buy one, watch it, rewind it, take it back, and then just bare <laughs> up to the HMV uh, shop assistant and go, didn't like it, want my money back. And like nine times out of ten, it would work, and they'd refund you. And I get my money back, and then I go to like the other end of the store and buy a different ECW video. It was like my own personal rental shop watching these uh, ECW shows. Eventually, they got onto it, especially when DVDs started coming out. You stopped uh, being able to do that so much, but I got away with that for years. Like I'd, I'd keep the ones I really loved, like uh, a lot of like the you know the Jerry Lynn Rob Van Dam shows, uh, Living Dangerously '99. Is is that one of theirs? I tend to '98. I think. 19- yeah i've got that i've still got that on vhs in the house now so i'd keep some but that was kind of i watched it again you know a little bit removed from 
watching it live at the time and probably into the 2000s i was still doing that and buying those videos um but that was kind of yeah how i watched it and yeah i kind of had the opposite feeling i think joe i think i kind of watched it thinking this is so much cooler than than what's on wwf and what wcw are doing because maybe i was just parachuting in and getting to see these big matches and you know cherry picking the videos i wanted to watch based on who was on the shows but not really realizing that yet yeah, the you know Paul Heyman's creative juices had very much run out by that point and I was you know just seeing you know little glimpses into maybe what ECW really was when the real revolution was happening leading up to 1997 do you know what I think my mindset was though was I think because the first time I'd heard of it was based on them coming well based on Taz being ECW champion in WWF mm. straight away that established that like ECW probably in my mind wasn't like this top promotion because Taz was their champion and what the fuck was Taz in WWE? Triple H beat him, didn't he? So he, it was like yeah. a, even Vince seems to. I think the, was it on the rise or fall of ECW where even they got Vince to admit that he regretted doing that. I'm sure you didn't I believe him though. Can't remember that at all. Yeah, he does like a talking think, head where he says some of the. Well, I think they, they ask him why did you do that and he's like I can't remember. Maybe that wasn't a good idea to bury the other company's champion. Stranger uh, moment of clarity from Vince, but. You know, he's always playing a game, Joe. Well and truly. But I think I think one of the, my takes from watching some of these shows was like, the guys were their top guys. They don't seem like very good wrestlers. So like that Sabu Sandman match is the one that really stands out in my mind. I remember thinking yeah, it's like, one of the worst pay-per-view matches. Of yeah. <laughs> it was, I just remember uh, thinking stop. like, this is really sloppy and all over the place. Whereas <laughs> the usual wrestling that I watch, like they kind of seem to, know what they're doing and they kind of carry themselves like proper stars and i think maybe it was a bit of like early wrestling snobbery on on my part and i just couldn't picture these guys as stars at all mm. and i think i just i wanted to see like blood and guts because i was like oh gimmick matches are really cool when i was 13 obviously <laughs> and you got it but i didn't feel like the the same payoff was there and i think say my favorite match during that era were those cactus jack triple h matches and i don't think i realized how emotionally invested i was and why those matches worked at an emotional level and then when i watched stuff in ecw i never had any emotional investment mm. and the matches never for me didn't work on any sort of i suppose emotional levels didn't have the connection with anyone and i just felt like there weren't many good workers and it's that's something i'm going to bring up later on in the podcast about the in-ring ability of a lot of these guys and i remember seeing tommy dreamer and i remember him coming in on that wwe on that smackdown show and i remember thinking this guy looks like shit <laughs> i didn't see it this guy is shit <laughs> not really getting it i was just being like completely confused by it to be honest with you a lot of it was aware, i, do, wasn't I it? do think there is some good stuff in 98 99 certainly heat yeah. 98 is a great oh, show yeah, and then yeah. obviously you've got all the tanaka mike awesome stuff and yeah. um, i think i think rhino towards the very very end that was having some decent stuff and then even aj styles has said many many times that that rvd uh jerry lynn match is like his favorite match of all time and that's what he really wanted to live up to to be a wrestler and stuff and i think you have got some good stuff in there but for me the absolute peak was 94 to 96 i mean all the memorable moments to show from ECW are all from that period. Cactus mm. Jack promos, the Kane Dewey stuff, the Dreamer Raven feud, Brian Pillman threatening to get his Johnson out and piss all over the ring. You had the Rey Mysterio matches, Jericho, Malenko, Steve Austin's promos. And I think by the time period we're about to talk about, 97, I think 
they'd obviously lost the ton of their roster and the bigger promotions had started yeah. to catch on to this car crash TV style. And obviously they had a bigger budget, a bigger platform. So, And also the thing with being an innovator, it can't last forever. And three years is a hell of a run. And like I said, it's not that I didn't enjoy stuff from 97, 98 and onwards. It's just that those were the peak years for me. And it's like Benno said earlier, I think Paul Heyman was... Uh, sort of like burnt out as a creative force and, and it really can't have helped and I'm sure it was the same when you guys were watching Ring of Honor that um, all the talent was constantly mm. being built up only to be cherry picked away by uh, the bigger promotions Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they couldn't sign anyone to contracts around that time and you're right and I think the fact of the mass transit incident delaying them on pay-per-view what they would have been able to do if they'd gotten pay-per-view in 96 could have been better they would have had perhaps Raven for that little bit longer whereas you know it's one pay-per-view and he's basically done then at that point and he's kind of gone and then you can see as you're going through the shows um the amount of talent who end up disappearing and the ones who stay and this is where you come back onto joe's point you can see why wwe and wcw aren't really going to be signing them the mm. fact they signed the sandman seems very fucking bizarre in hindsight <laughs> hardcore hack hardcore hack yeah um yeah. Oh, by the way, correction, you were right, Benno. It's Living Dangerously 99. Right, yeah. Yeah, I just uh, remember the video cover really, really from that. Um, and they were be- They were much better in-ring years, but they'd lost a lot of the star power, though, by that point. And it was really, it was kind of the Rob Van Dam show mm. as much as anything else for, like, what felt like the longest time. And they were building eventually to him and Mike Awesome. Mm. And then RVD got injured and an Awesome left. Mm. And that kind, of, and that was the last thing they could do. And then it was like on fumes when you've got Rhino, who was good for the time, yeah. just not really like it was just the worst possible time for it. And it was like him and just incredible. Steve Carino. Did you guys Steve, follow Steve. it to, to right to the end as well? Like no, Jay, no, I read the reviews in Power Slam, but I wasn't yeah. getting the tapes and stuff like I used to. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't be buying all of the pay per views at that point because it, you kind of knew it was on the way down. It was like, and you could just tell it was hand to mouth. And the stuff that you were kind of reading at the time, the fact that like T- the TNN show was kind of killing them and they couldn't afford, they, they were, it was too expensive for them to be able to run and they weren't being getting anything back and then they were going to be kicked off, but they couldn't leave mm. to go anywhere else. And that, and that was it. And in some ways, that's, that's kind of how it should have ended. Mm. It's a, it's, it's a phoenix. It was there to give an industry a kick up the arse that it vitally needed. But as Martin said, these things burn out. Yeah. And they burn out very, very, very quickly. But they're there to basically kind of change a scene. Because as a result of ECW, you don't get Gabe and Ring of Honor. And you don't get Ring of Honor. Then really at that point, do you even get like an AEW? I know, I'm not mentioning TNA very deliberately at that point. <laughs> but you can kind of... At that point, there was the kind of... Those ECW around kind of 95, the structures of the show were that the undercard had this great wrestling in there as well. Mm. But then once that had gone, it was like very much the fucking kind of stunt show stuff. Yeah. And and some of them were just an absolute state, to be honest with you. Um, mm. Like the pit bulls as well. Yeah, there's the a lot of that. A lot of that. Mid card. Well, you mentioned Gabe there. I think this is when, because it was around this time period that Todd Gordon was like the mole, wasn't he? And he was sort of like, 
he was sort of like um, trying to get a bunch of wrestlers who were disenfranchised with ECW signed to WCW and then he gets fined us fee sort of thing. And then I think that's when, you know, Heyman ended up getting rid of him. And I think that's when Gabe's role sort of like ramped up a bit more in ECW. So, um, but I think out of that deal, I think it was only Perry Saturn who ended up signing, but it... But even after the show, it is like Saturn leaves, Raven leaves, and there's even more people leaving, isn't there? Something I did want to ask you guys, though, because obviously talked about um, the ECW invasion on the previous retro shows we've done on to Raw and things like that. Obviously, that was really helpful for them, you know, because they didn't have national television, so huge favor from WWF letting them promote this barely legal show, but... What did you all make of, like, Vince having Eamon on the payroll for 1K a week? I mean, the reasons have always seemed a bit dodgy to me, that it was there to help the promotion and nurture new talent and steer them away from signing with WCW. But, you know, half their roster did sign with WCW, and $1,000 a week isn't ex- exactly life-changing money or could make that much of a difference. And I always find the reasons they've given for this relationship a bit weird, and I don't think they're actually saying the truth about what this relationship was between them. Oh Any yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'll be honest with you, Martin. The problem is there's so much bullshit out there about it. So you hear Hamill on the ECW documentary, and it's like, oh, they're all, and he's talking to Tommy Dreamer about how he's listening to a conversation about him doing a, an invasion angle in WCW. And unfortunately, when he says it, it's, and I've watched three fucking documentaries on ECW, not recently, but overall, <laughs> and you're kind of none the wiser. Because there's so many bullshit merchants about the place. So if you listen, uh, I think it's, um, oh, what's the one that are forever hardcore? That's the one that Borash did. Yeah. Which is, which is better. And then you've got the kind of response from Todd Gordon and everyone else saying it was, it was a power play and the fact he was getting the thousand um, dollars a week and the rest of it, which seems so obvious in hindsight when you're watching these shows, doesn't it? That it, that like the connections were there. What, why it would even be like? But they conditioned. Why would you believe Heyman? Yeah. Why would? Why? Why as a fan would you be like? Yeah, this is on the up and up. WWF and WCW are the enemies when there's obviously that deal in place because around this time, as we talked about for Canadian Stampede, ECW are all over WWE TV. Heyman's supposed to be the commentator on Shotgun Saturday Night. There's obviously, you know, Heyman's obviously in Vince's pocket. Um, Yeah, I I would find that odd to 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 still believe and still to like, you know, Rob Van Dam's this WWF guy, so we better boo him. Like, and these fans took it seriously as as like these these sellouts. Like, it, it never really made any sense to me though, watching, you know, years later. It still goes on. Three words. Progress fans group. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. <laughs> that's, They're that's more like, come on, invaders. Come and take us. Destroy our company. We love you. Like, oh, oh look at that. They mentioned progress on the yeah. network. Yeah. You don't get oh, you sold just, out chance anymore. They just blurred the whole thing, didn't they, with uh, the British strong style as heel stuff. But we're on the network. Cheer us. It didn't make any sense. No. But with the Heyman stuff, when did that... Was that knowledge that was sort of known in kind of insider wrestling circles at the time or was that knowledge that came to lie a few years later i've never sort of actually understood that 
It was in the Observer. I think it like, was known about, yeah. Right. Yeah. Heyman, Heyman's about... deal was mentioned quite a lot, wasn't it? Heyman was a Heyman and Cornette were like Meltzer's two main sources in 1997. It was so oh, obvious where his news was coming from, mm. And like, it, it seemed pretty obvious. Jericho is clearly one of his number one sources now. And Heyman, <laughs> if you believe, yeah. you know, getting a, you know, it's relevant because you know Vince and Heyman's relationship came. Full circle, twelve times over, and they were working again t- together again until literally this week, where again it boiled over and Heyman got sacked. And if you believe c- certain dark Twitter rumors I've heard today, Heyman's the one feel- feeding some of the news about uh, WWE's lack of uh, coronavirus testing uh, to the dirt sheets because he's angry about getting sacked. That's all pure rumor and conjecture, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was true because they really do have like that that weird love hate relationship where. Vince, you can tell, detests Heyman as a person. Like, I know that for a fact without knowing either of the two dudes. It's so obvious that he can't stand him. But there's quite clearly a huge grudge and respect on Vince's side for Heyman because he kind of started something out of nothing. And maybe on some level, Vince sees, or at least what he would perceive, a little bit of himself in, you know, Heyman's entrepreneurial spirit to the point where... 23 years later Vince still sees Heyman as like you know when it came to pleasing his shareholders and the TV networks uh, last year it was Eric Bischoff and it was Paul Heyman that Vince still turned to so you can tell there's something there I don't know whether his uh, his motives are entirely entirely altruistic or or whether there was you know more behind the Heyman ECW, WWF, Vince relationship, but I think that's a that's a heavy element of it, which is kind of odd when you look at the psyche of Vince McMahon. He always, but he also wanted to, he also wanted to pillage Heyman's ideas. That too. Well, that was wasn't era. that more Russo, if anyone? Oh, and Russo presenting those ideas to Vince. Yeah, but it was also I, I still Vince, won't admit it to this day. Well. If you ask Russo, oh, no, he didn't yeah. get any influence from ECW. Never, never mind the fact that Steve Austin became the Sandman, or like you know the style in ring, the way they dressed up the women, the amount of characters and angles that were straight up lifted from ECW TV. Now there's no influence there. That's the, 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 that's just the, that's nonsense. It was just the times. They were influenced by Jerry Spring, Springer, not by ECW. And Bischoff's like the say- same, isn't he? he? He makes out like he never watched ECW and he was never watching it and things like that. And it's like, mate, he signed fucking virtually <laughs> after yeah. that. Entire cruiserweight <laughs> division. It was like that time Vince went... Was, was it Vince said when he was asked about this and he goes, well, we've always had attitude. Have you? <laughs> Duke the dumpster, Drosy? <laughs> really? You yeah. had fucking attitude, did you? Repo man. Oh, yeah, exactly. Are we, which is the direction they've gone in now, which is Bruce Pritchard, which I tend to think is like... 94 WWF. Mm. I think with Vince and Heyman, though, like one of the things that there may be a connection from is the fact that Heyman worked for Vince's dad as well, didn't he, as a teenager? Did so he? I think that, oh, yeah, he was, he was a photographer at Madison oh, Square. Oh, that poor period, yeah. yeah. Like, basically talked his way into a job as a, as a 14-year-old. I do know that, like, yeah. I honestly how recommend... How does that happen? Said the lad who worked at the nightclub. Yeah, how does that happen, See, Heyman's rubbing up with Ric Flair. <laughs> No, I, I honestly recommend if you've got some time, uh, go for the Observer archives and listen. It's 2009, mm. and it's two and a half hours of Heyman talking about Captain Lou Albano with Dave and Brian Alvarez after he di- after uh, Captain Lou dies, and it's an absolutely amazing podcast. So you just get Heyman documenting his entire history with WWF or WWWF and like 
um, Freddie Blassie giving him lifts everywhere and stuff. And it's kind of mad, but there's like this connection that goes back with Vince to like the late seventies, basically. Mm. So they've known each other for the longest time. So I wonder if there's like a weird grudging respect and connection for the way he talked his way into the company in a weird role. And then for how he kind of made himself, but also that connection with his dad as well. And the respect he had for him. So it feels like there's like this weird psychological relationship there. I'd love to, to see a sit down between the two of them i reckon it'd be fascinating mm. i think it'd be more fascinating than an undertaker vince sit down because you wouldn't see a kind of man who isn't as smart as he thinks he is being taken full advantage of by vince mcmahon i think you'd see Heyman kind of trying to work vince out and play vince at his own game if anything i think it'd be fascinating those two together <laughs> but he, he always has pictures at studio 54 the famous night yeah and all, didn't he That's just right, didn't yeah. he promote a show there when he was like 18 or something something yeah, like that yeah. yeah he was on jericho's podcast as well and he went through a lot of the early stuff like studio that's 54 where i've heard it stuff. yeah i was trying to work that out yeah that's that's a good listen definitely check that out if you can um i was gonna say though like i mean on like ecw in this period obviously as we saw from watching wwf tv there's a clear relationship with the WWF and Vince is helping them promote their pay-per-view. Like, I, ECW kind of, every time you hear ECW get broken down or talked about, like, the motto is kind of, you know, they were trendsetters. Heyman got burnt out. They were too big to be small and too small to be big and all that stuff. Like, this is kind of the the tipping point, I think, for ECW. This is, like, this has got to be... It's one, their first pay-per-view, but two, has got to be the most important big show in ECW's history. This was like, this was make or break time. Like, following it at the time, JP, I mean, where was this like as big a deal as it seems looking back on it? Like with retrospective eyes, was this genuinely seen as ECW is still going to be a big player? They're going to take it to the next level. They're going to be as big as WWF and WCW. Was that kind of your mentality at the time? Like how was it kind of covered in that period as far as, far as you, you remember or your take on it? So it was kind of covered as if it was a big show and it was a big blow with the mass transit incident and not getting onto pay-per-view around that time. That was that was definitely portrayed as as kind of being a big deal. And that the fact that this was a big show because of the cost of running live and um, the fact that it was so, so hand to mouth that they needed this show to work. And that's why I think you end up with the crowd the way they do throughout the show, because this is an example of a crowd willing a show to work because they realize the kind of, they realize how important it is ultimately in the scheme of things. But I don't think, it's um it, i don't know martin I, I suppose it didn't i wouldn't have got the idea that it was kind of life or death necessarily and you would hear wrestlers talk about how it's the idea even at that stage you realized what the kind of online popularity was versus the kind of reality of how popular they were and you you would hear them talk about the fact that they were going to be bigger than wcw and that just wouldn't have happened because of the nature of the structure of the company. It was in no way set up for, for growth mm. because how many employees did they ever really have? It was all so hand-to-mouth, not done formally. Um, we've spoken about non-declaration of earnings. How many people were declaring <laughs> what they were earning there? There's all that kind of stuff that, that kind of comes into the mix. But it felt more important because they were the ones that were getting the kind of zeitgeist of the time. And the others 
the others were obviously in in 97 and it was kind of that recognition of they deserved it because of all the stuff that had kind of in some ways like um the influence they had had on the industry even at that stage that they they'd kind of earned the right for the big pay-per-view show and then after that they end up in a basically in a pattern i remember taz saying it on the um rise and fall of ecw just like we start churning out pay-per-views and that's kind of what happens and it's fascinating viewing if you look at the pay-per-view buy rates and the attendances by the time you get to like 1999 you've got like effectively like anarchy rules 99 you've got 85,000 buys and a 6,000 attendance with a 208,000 gate on it and they were never profitable at any time and it kind of just makes you wonder how they got that far on it. Mm. It's it's whereas I think the pay per view buys for this one. I mean, I've seen various things kind of reported around forty four thousand or something like that. Yeah, that seems to be the general consensus, doesn't it? So it wasn't even break even for them, I don't think. But Heyman had said prior to the pay per view happening that if this fails, there will still be an ECW on Monday. It's not this isn't all or nothing. I don't mm. know if he. So went back on that and then was like, yes, it is all nothing to ramp the stakes up. But I think with the crowds as well, you know, they were doing decent crowds after this. I think um, Shane Douglas dealt with a lot of like local promotion in the summer for a show they did in Pittsburgh. And I think that drew about four and a half thousand. I don't think they were doing any less than 500. Yeah, when they were when they were because they were touring quite a bit, weren't they? And I don't think they were doing any less than 500. That's right. He was a big deal for them, particularly in that Pittsburgh. Because um, I don't know if you remember, it, like the November to Remember show, like that, like that's kind of very much built up around Shane Douglas, mm. and it's <laughs> which I can see the levels of excitement and all of the faces in front of. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll be stage. talking that decade. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and 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 but it was built up as like a really kind of big deal for the time, um, like and he felt like he was important because of that kind of a role that he was able to provide. And they were always doing good kind of attendances on the whole, weren't they? Even at Elks Lodge, I think it would be always doing sort of six, 700, but it was always very hand to mouth. It was like the money they would make would go into paying debts and you're just robbing Peter to pay Paul. And it's this horrible, vicious circle by the end. Mm. Yeah, that's it. And, and like you say, the growth does happen from this period onwards still. And I think the being on pay-per-view and the and they're getting on, you know, TNN eventually, although that didn't go particularly well. All of that stuff still happens. It just feels like it comes too late. Like I watched um, the the little bits of Beyond the Mat that includes uh, the ECW stuff. I don't know if you guys got a chance to give it a look. Uh, Beyond the Mat is obviously something I think we'll have to review in full uh, at some point <laughs> if we can uh, if we can help it. But I was watching that and like. Heyman, even in like the, it's only about ten minutes of the documentary that that uh, that covers ECW, but it's like it's this big deal, and he gives that memorable speech um, that's kind of gone down in wrestling history. You know, getting the getting the wrestlers all fired up for the show. You know, saying that the big dance and this is going to be the big moment for ECW, and then at the end of it, he just looks destroyed. He's kind of like they try and ask him, they say to him, "Oh, uh, what did you, what did you think of the show?" And he's like, well, "The fans liked it. I liked it." If the wrestlers liked it, I liked it. I'm just glad it's over. And like that, you can tell the the stress of this 
one man operation that he that he kind of was at that point has got to the point where I don't think he even enjoyed putting this pay per view on. Like like to to JP's point, he was probably more worrying about like where the the next lot of money was got coming from and and where they were actually going to go next. I think even like the live mic wasn't working ten seconds before they were about to go on air. Is that true? So, wow. Much to J what JP was saying about the fans willing it to be good, the fans realised this and just started chanting ECW, ECW, you know, to get mm. past this sort of like awkward Pay-per-view moment. Pay per view was Obviously, the other chance as well, wasn't it? Pay per view. That yeah, also made it. I think at the end as well, I think that's why, I mean, we'll talk about it in a bit, but I think they had a generator that was literally about to burn out, so that's why the main event's like done in 10 minutes or whatever <laughs> wasn't it like t- a minute after they went off air it just yeah something like that yeah. completely yeah. yeah like on beyond the mat you've got Heyman literally saying like send on a referee out there tell them they've got 30 seconds to go home tell them i said go home and then they still don't go home straight away um but we could talk about that when we get there but it's very cw the whole thing isn't it it is just proper like you know gorilla kind of Heyman trying to do it you know, in a DIY kind of way and them just about broadcasting the show after them just about getting on pay-per-view because of the uh, the mass transit stuff uh, and just about surviving and doing it and just about putting on a decent show. Um, I suppose we can, we, can, we can get into the show itself. I don't know. If, this is a show I can't actually distinctly... I've definitely seen it, but I can't picture when, whether it was around the time or since or whether I've seen it in drips and drabs like obviously i've seen taz sabu obviously i've seen the main event maybe i've just you know i've heard it written about in so many so many places and watched so many documentaries about it maybe i feel like i've seen this this whole show before and i haven't um but this is definitely the first time i I can remember sitting down and you know analyzing the whole thing especially with a with a 2020 brain and yeah as you as you alluded to Matt and I think what we what we've kind of found here I don't know if everyone's going to agree with me is that uh ECW is very much of its time and place isn't it I think as we go mm-hmm. as we go through these these matches yeah. and the, the undercards on this show and some of the wrestlers on this show it's a lot of stuff that I would have been banging to at the time whereas I'm sitting here on grapple tonight and, and yesterday and put my ratings in and yeah i can't say i'm particularly complimentary about the whole thing but i don't know maybe maybe that's harsh maybe we should be judging this on on atmosphere and kind of the feeling of the show because my god what an atmosphere at the start of this thing he said with the the crowd willing it to be good going crazy with with joey styles in the ring with i think it's the dudleys come out and uh and interrupt him uh i think that's that's the main selling point of this show isn't it yeah, and I also think that, you know, as much as you say all that, oh, it's definitely from its time, but um, I had some great nostalgia going back and watching this show. I really mm. feel like if you were sort of like following along with the time and you remember the whole 97 time period, then I think it is some great no- nostalgia going going back and watching shows like this. Mm. How long would you guys have seen this show after it actually happened? How long would it have taken you to get the tape, do you reckon? I watched it less than a year afterwards it probably would have been about sort of nine ten months yeah about three about three months for ecw stuff i think and then even longer for japanese stuff yeah how how was that mark was that like on a tape that you got or i assume it wasn't on dsf at this point oh right no i never had dsf but um yeah you'd just uh, get the latest list off rob butcher or Mm. whoever is tape trading at that time and then get the tapes off them like um i remember 
I think that night the line was crossed in 94. I think that was his most copied tape, and you could tell by the time I got a oh. copy of it. It was, <laughs> <laughs> quality Same was dreadful. Yeah, the, some of the quality, barely legal as well. Like, mm. it, was a, it was a proper shonky 10th generation videotape <laughs> that you had at that point in time. Definitely. It was... Yeah, it doesn't. It, it didn't really hold up, but it felt like manna from heaven. Because mm. as we've talked about before, you'd order them, and then you'd be waiting for a few weeks. But it was fucking exciting when all these wrestling tapes were turning oh, yeah. up. And, and you'd be almost compelled to buy them kind of in bulk. Mm. So there were people, you know, um, like for what I would work and, and save up for, I'd end up buying quite, quite a lot of them, which is what I did around Christmas. I was like, I'm going to buy a load of these. And yeah, and you'd have to kind of get a bit of ECW. You'd almost be compelled to get a bit of Japan. And then because I was a child, basically, I would end up watching kind of any amount of stupid kind of hardcore shit as well that was going on at the time. <laughs> FMW. Yeah, F- yeah, FMW. Um, Roland Alexander promotion, talking of Beyond the Map. Vic Grimes versus, I'm trying to remember, what was um, Crash Holly's name? when he was on the indies, Erin O'Grady. Yeah, the, yeah. Who he has the great, the dark match with, the famous dark match that kind of... Oh, before that Raw. That match is, ama- that match is like ahead of its time. That match is amazing. Yeah. And those two did a match, and I think it's Vic Grimes getting hit by a car at one point. And so it was like, you'd buy all this kind of dark shit that was going on around there, but you're always, comp- always compelled to buy ECW. JP, mm. I've got to ask, since you were getting paid cash in hand... <laughs> Were you literally sending envelopes of cash to this Rob Butcher fella? No, postal orders. Ah, yeah, postal orders. Right, okay. it was before you had a checkbook or anything, when you were like 14, 15, it was all about the postal orders. Now, sorry to sound like really young and cool to you couple of boomers over there. <laughs> like, I'm sitting this when I was... How does that work? Because <laughs> I've, I've got no idea how that works. So you just go to the post office and yeah. say, can I have 20 quid in postal orders? And they yeah. took like a minimal fee. And it's basically just like they just give you a, a check that then the person who receives it goes to the post office and cashes it in. Yeah. Oh, okay, so when I went to the post office with my nan on a Monday and she used <laughs> to buy me a bag of chips after she got her pension, mm. this would have been what people around your age would have been doing at the time, I take it. Well, but that's like <laughs> cashing in your gyro and stuff like that. Gyros. Yeah, my my aunt was there that doing that as well at the same time. <laughs> it, yeah. was a, it was a weekly event. On a, during the summer holidays, it was a weekly event, any school holiday. Because my mum and dad were working. So you've almost made me nostalgic for post offices in the mid nineties because I mm. kind of had everything near me. You could buy, you could buy cassette tapes for a fucking Anstrad at, that, at the same place while getting your postal order as you, well. You can still use postal orders now. I had to get one recently. I was trying to um, get a copy of a document from a court, nothing too seriously, but just something I needed to sort oh, out. Right. Um, but then I managed to sort out uh, to do with moving house, and they did want a postal order or a check, and I was like, well, I'm not. You're not getting a check. I'm not even sure checkbooks still exist at this point. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do remember doing it. You, you, aren't, you aren't too old, because I remember getting the uh, the King of the Death matches, the uh, the, the Cactus Jack, uh, Terry Funk one. Where the, IWA. Uh, yeah. yeah, IWA. Where the, uh, I was going to say IWA Mid-South then, but not, not Mid-South, the other IWA. Uh, the one where it's, uh, it's supposed to be a big explosion at the end that Foley goes into in his book, and it's like a, like a small fart, like a fart in church. Uh, that one. Uh, I remember having that video and my dad telling me off because he thought it was real uh, compared to the other wrestling I watched. <laughs> but I think that was one of the only tapes I got via Postal Order. Uh, but anyway, yeah, back, back, to, back to this one. Uh, Sorry, Ben, I would just, uh, just to digress.
just a bit. Do you oh, guys remember a Tri-State Wrestling Alliance? It was kind of the pre- precursor oh, yeah. to uh, ECW. And they had a Cactus Shack v. Eddie Gilbert. I think it was like uh, two out of three falls or whatever. And then it was false count anywhere and stretcher and loads of stuff. And I was just looking up now because I couldn't remember the name of the promotion. But like Meltzer gave those like four stars, four and a quarter for the stretcher match. And yeah, and I think they were uh, well regarded at the time for being, you know, the, some of the best garbage matches in sort of on U.S. soil. I've seen a couple of those years ago. So when mm. I would have, when I was on various forums, and there used to be like uh, threads where people would just upload individual matches, I remember getting a couple of those Eddie Gilbert Cactus Jack matches off a mega upload. Because I remember some guy did a mass Foley upload. Because I remember, do you remember when Foley had that DVD that came out that was like Mick Foley's greatest hits and misses yeah. or something? So I remember the guy uploaded a load of matches that weren't featured on that DVD and it was a couple of those and quite a few ECW matches and some of that that would have been how I would have seen the Terry Funk Japanese stuff you were chatting about there Benno Mm. Um, and I remember those were on there and I remember thinking right like I get why this might have been good in was it like 91, 92 yeah 91 yeah it was like hard to watch and this would have been like 2004 I reckon because it was around the time of the Orton feud and I remember they were really hard to watch at that time because the quality was just so, so bad. You're talking indie shows in 1991, single cam. And I I don't think I made it through one of the matches, but I definitely made it through another. Because I remember reading about this Eddie Gilbert being like this wrestling genius and all the rest of it. And like this flawed guy who like, uh, when did he die? He died really young, didn't he? Mm. Um, and because he, he was the booker of, was it Continental with Heyman as well? Because didn't he give Heyman his uh, stuff? Continental's a- with uh, Jerry Jarrett. What's the one that they that Heyman booked him? Is it in Alabama or something? Um, it might that might well be Continental, and I think he brought him down there, didn't he? Yeah, I can't remember, but yeah, I remember watching it, Martin. It just not it, it doesn't hold up. Put it that right. way. This is in two thousand four. Oh. Well, speaking of things that hold up, and yeah, going from uh, <laughs> from postal order days to mega upload days to the hooky copy of this pay-per-view that JP managed to get his hands on for us, <laughs> uh, which did have the original music intact, which I think is needed. I imagine most people watching this will be watching the uh, the network region, but I don't know. Have a word with JP. Maybe you could do a deal for the JP drive. Who knows? Uh, maybe you can find a better copy out there somewhere. Uh, I, was, I was mostly yeah, glad. thanks, Martin, for putting out. He shared something called Barely Legal 97 with me, which... <laughs> <laughs> JP yeah, on that drive could be anything. You were giving me the correct barely legal, or if you had another <laughs> not, folder that was. No. Uh... I, I was doing my notes for the oh, show well, today in work. Oh, that's worse. Really. I was doing yeah. my notes today for the show in work, and I literally googled barely legal '97 before I thought about what I was doing. I was like, "Oh, that's not, <laughs> not going to look good in my uh, my internet history search." No. Uh, but, <laughs> however, you got it, JP. When we... some kind of hustler stuff comes up <laughs> instead. Oh, definitely don't go into the images side of Google for that. Um, but yeah, Ooh. however you got a JP, it was definitely uh, helpful because for me, the biggest selling point of all these shows was getting the intro video and getting the proper mm. ECW intro <laughs> video. Again, when I was a teenager going back and watching these shows, 
that was enough for me to be honest. That opening video with all the high spots and it would it would change all the time and it would a lot of the old spots would always be in there, you know, like um Tommy Dreamer hitting Raven in the head with the chair and you know the the classic Sabu spots you'd see, the crash and burn spots you'd see in there, but that was the the moment where watching this show I was getting the real nostalgia that feels. I feel like more promotions should do that. Should have like a like a cool highlight video at the start of the show. It's a uh, trendsetter ECW. I feel like that would still work in 2020. It's that music as well gets stuck mm. in your head all day as well, doesn't it? That oh, definitely. I, so I was definitely humming that for like the majority of today. Mm, definitely. It's very easy. I found this today when I went out when I went out on my walk. Um, that. <laughs> And Joe's already saying I've spent six hours watching ECW today and doing a podcast <laughs> on ECW. Fair amount the show is three hours I was, long. <laughs> I, I was listening, yeah, exactly. I was listening to ECW themes as well at the same time. <laughs> That's a big part of the solemn point, though, isn't it? It's like Ring of Honor or Progress a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Like, th- that is a big part of the atmosphere. Absolutely. Like, I mean, Natural Born Killers for me is always, like, it's amazing. I found myself, oh, what was it? Um, like, and now I found myself in a Rob Zombie kind of wormhole. Cause I remember yeah, why turning... Zombie Thunder Kiss, I think one of them had as the theme. Yeah, it? it's uh, the Pitbull song, Pitbull. isn't it? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and there was another one where he was doing, he was like promoting his album. And they had from Dragula uh, was a song that he did. Um, yep. And it's, I don't know, it made me very nostalgic listening it... to that. And that's what a lot of that music does. He did Edge's music years later as well, didn't he, Rob mm. Zombie, for a, for a brief period yeah. of time. Before he became a horror director. Yeah, I think it was just before that. Um, JP, what, what what were you listening to? On the, were you listening to the original Kiss version of Taz's song? Yeah, I was. Yeah, War Machine. Yeah, War Machine. Yeah, Good I was man. listening to all, all the original ones for that. Yeah, it, it's, I, don't, I, I never liked the Survive If I Let You kind of stuff that he would say on it. Yeah, but the music was fucking awesome. It I was. I know imagine... I've had some controversial takes on theme tunes oh, no. uh, in the past <laughs> couple of months. Watch but yeah, back. the music for this, other than Rob, Rob Van Damme, we were missing the uh, Pantera theme, mm, which is yeah. a shame. But yeah, yeah, some brilliant themes on this one. Oh, he, he has he... a Van Halen theme for this. Is that what it is? Is it Van Halen? I it's, didn't know that. It's not good. Pound cake. Mm. I had to look it up afterwards. When did he get Walk? Because I, I assumed he always had it at ECW. Yeah, I, th- I thought he'd already had it. I can't remember him not having it. 98? I, I want to say, I wonder if he has it in November to remember 97. If mm. not, then maybe 98. Um, that he gets it. And that's just iconic. Mm. That is. Is that oh, from yeah. Vulgar Display of Power? It is, mate. One of my yeah. absolute favourite albums ever. Been working out. Out of that one a lot recently. Great it's album. Got, it's got a great cover photo as well with a great history to it. I mean, all... Was it Phil, Phil Anselmo punching a bloke in the face repeatedly? Yeah. <laughs> it's a very ECW in a way. <laughs> it fits. Very... Oh, we, we've all definitely been in a club before, haven't we? And walks come on and we've done the old Rob Van Dam point. Like, I, mm. I think I feel like every wrestling fan's done that at least. Uh, at least that's one that, uh, that you still hear now in uh, in rock clubs up and down the country. Uh, I enjoyed, um, after the first match, Sandman doing his promo with Lust for Life playing in the background, which is like, the, yeah. it's not the most Sandman <laughs> song that is. It's kind of an odd choice from Paul either. 
Well, train spotting had just come out, hadn't Ah, uh, yeah, he's, he's big on that, like using the Pulp Fiction, like sound the like music and stuff was, like that. Was train spotting a hit in the US, though? I think he was, he was, okay. yeah, because a lot of people. I remember Steven Tyler doing an interview with Kerrang and saying they had to switch it off halfway through because it reminded him too much of the 70s and when he was trying to come off drugs and stuff. <laughs> and I'm sure there was a subtitled version of it that was doing the yeah, rounds. I've well. heard that rumor before, but I always assumed it was like an underground yeah. hit. And, uh, yeah, I, I suppose it I, kind of fits of what ECW's appeal is to some extent. If it was, is there subtitles yeah. in the club scene though? Isn't there? Yeah, there, there is, are. There yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. But I remember hearing rumours that in the US, the full release was subtitled, mm-hmm. like Enterprise, across yeah. the US. Yeah. Was this where your love of Scotland started, Joe? Was it Train Spot and that set it all off? Um, God, I'll have to think about it to be honest with you, Benno. But Train Spotting is in my top five films of all time, so oh, okay. it it is quite possible. Yeah, did you quite like T two? Yeah. Uh, no, I didn't. I thought it was kind of shit to be mm. honest with you. Yeah. yeah, unnecessary. Didn't need to exist. And also, why was that like really attractive, almost model like woman hanging around with two like ex heroin addicts in their forties who looked like they were going through a midlife crisis? It was. It didn't make any sense from that perspective. I, so, I put me right off. Sorry, mate. Yeah. You're talking about T2 or Francine hanging around with Sandman and Tommy Dreamer. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see the RF video shoot where it's him and Francine in a swimming pool for the entire shoot interview? I think I am. No, but I want to. Because there's a on one of the TV. Trust me, Ben. You don't. <laughs> on one of the TVs I watched like after this, there's a there's Beulah, not Beulah, sorry, it is Francine. It's Francine and uh, and Shane Douglas doing a promo just on a beach in front of some water in the dark, and just Francine. It was just an excuse for the girls to get the the kit off. I think was kind of the uh, mm-hmm. the point there running through ECW. But but anyway, this show it's as if we're trying to put it off because the opening matches are yeah. so bad. But let's let's talk some of these opening matches. Um, we kicked off with uh, the Dudley Boys, obviously, like I said, interrupted Joey Styles and having qu- quote unquote a match with the Eliminators and true to form, the Eliminators who were like they were twenty three years ahead of their time because they are the perfect gift tag team. Like all you want to see is the total elimination out yeah. of and like that was that was that was the genius of Paul Heyman, wasn't it? Like you know, cutting down their matches on TV to make them look like the best tag team in the world because you would just see all the big spots. And this was kind of like that as well because really, for all intents and purposes, it was a squash, wasn't it? And the uh, the Dudleys uh, didn't get too much in here. When you say total elimination, Benno, I'm assuming you mean total elimination! <laughs> Great call. That was fucking scary. Spot on. <laughs> that honestly sounded demonic. Well, that's what um, Joey Styles sounds like every time he like screams it out. I had to turn my TV yeah. down earlier. <laughs> Do you know what they honestly like remind me of? Fight, the Eliminators, honestly, I was watching it and I was thinking, it's like a rough version of the Young Bucks with the way they're doing some of this stuff and the combinations. But also, they're, for the time period, they're kind of like a not-so-good version of uh, of uh, the Can-Ams, as in Furnace and Crowfoot. It's almost like they do sort of higher spots and more regular high spots than the Can-Ams would do. But the transitions and the in-between stuff is nowhere near as smooth or as good or as nuanced as what the Can-Ams could do when they're in there with someone. It was like they'd learned how to do the spots but hadn't learned how to do the in-between stuff to mm. go between the moves, yeah. if anything. And I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy it because it was quite good fun for, what was it, five, six minutes of them just kicking the Dudley boys ass because I'll be honest I've always thought the Dudley boys were pretty shit 
Um, there you go. I've said it. Uh, <laughs> probably a controversial take in some corners. So I was fine with that, seeing those two get squashed on this show and not have to watch their kind of boring offense and Bubba Ray do his dusty tribute and all the rest of it, which isn't as good. So, yeah, Eliminator's interesting, but, yeah, kind of the pound shot version of the Can-Ms, I thought. Wow. Yeah, they, they kind of um, sum up what you were saying earlier about ECW there. So, 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 don't you know, it's like it is. It's those bits between the moves that just don't exist. Yeah. Uh, Non-existent. Yeah, but I don't think any of us cared at the time. Were you a fan of the Eliminators, Martin? Yeah, really. I, thinking back now, I did really enjoy Because it. obviously it's just those high-impact moves. But like Joe said, it's sort of like they'll do a spot and then it's like, right, stop. We'll set up another spot. Right, stop. Let's do another spot. It, see, mm. it, there's no flow to it at all, is there? But watching at the time, I was like, wow, just look at all these big sort of like power moves and like how they're flying around the ring for like two big guys. Um, but thinking back, though, I can't remember him having this uh, baby pink gear, though. I, that totally caught me by surprise. I don't remember him having that at all. That's a hell of a look, to be fair. Perry Saturn and Baby yeah. Pink, what's that to love? Um, you can tell they believe in themselves as well. You can tell they believe they are the best tag team in the world. It's not a gimmick. Paul Heyman has like drilled it into their brain. They're the best thing going. And yeah, a couple of months later, they wouldn't even exist anymore. Um, I, would, I actually, as much as I'm making fun of them, I think I would enjoy their a tag run somewhere else. But I don't think it would. Don't think if uh, if Cronus had followed Saturn to WCW, it would have uh, would have ever worked quite so well. Um, this was well, the, he was the a maniac, was he? He was an apt. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's one of those guys. There are lots of stories of him, like backstage, absolute maniac. He's as he's as as athletic as all hell, mm. but he's kind of not in any shape, and apparently just never took it seriously. Whereas Saturn was always very very serious mm. about about his wrestling, and Cronus was just like completely the opposite. Mm. I've fond memories of the Gangstonators, where him and New <laughs> Jack. Oh yeah, up. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and yeah, you know, just to mirror what you guys have said, this is just a match for the Eliminators to get their shit in, really. Mm. And just to set up our tag team wrestling is different from everybody else's. Mm. That's like the aim of it, and they do that. And yeah, like, at the end, why does Gertner get in the ring? And it's just so they do a total elimination on him, mm. and it'll look spectacular because he's he's. So and it did, to be fair, they take no care of him. It like they, they don't pull any punches. Like it's a it's a shoot the total elimination. Like there's no work in that move. Benno, does that word care exist in this promotion? <laughs> True, from what we've seen. True, uh, as we'll see it's later. Coming off that UK Rampage '92, Benno, it's refreshing <laughs> to not see any uh, rest holds. Yeah, I'll t- I'll take this <laughs> oh, over yeah. that. To to that point though, like I'm, I'm kind of slagging it off. Uh, on the night, I did give it 2.75 on Grapple, which feels high, uh, considering what the match was. It was just an enjoyable squash, maybe two and a half, more reasonable. But the average is three. How'd you rate a squash? Did any of you go any higher or lower than that? I went two. Mm. I went two and a half. Yeah, I'd go two and a half. It's like, I think it was an, just an enjoyable squash match, and I think um, it, it did what it was supposed to, you know, get the crowd uh, riled up for a pay-per-view. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, did its job. Yeah. It, enjoyable enough opener. You could do this every month and just have the Eliminators up there with a, a different team of the week and just smash through them. So, yeah, it worked in that regard. Um, yeah, from there, we, we went into the, the, the Sandman promo that I, I mentioned before with the... Uh, Lust for Life background uh, music there, uh, which goes straight into a, another promo from uh, Chris Candido, who's uh, who uh, was it legit that he torn a muscle, was yeah. it, in his arm, something like that? Because he was supposed to be in the match with Lance Storm, wasn't he, on this show? Um, I was like Candido in ECW, to be honest. Like it was kind of shocking for me, you know, being younger, only knowing him as Skip 
in the uh, in the body donners in WWF, and then seeing him kind of as his, his own man in ECW. But I always thought he was fun. He's good in ring. I kind of liked his kind of whiny character. Solid on the mic. Had a good combo with uh, with Sonny when she wasn't off having sunny days with Shawn Michaels or shagging whoever she was shagging that week. But other than that, like I, I kind of liked them as an act. Uh, yeah, I was kind of sad that we, were, we weren't getting this match. I'd forgotten that uh, that he was even around, never mind the fact that the, uh, that yeah he was, he was supposed to be on the pay-per-view in the first place. It's a massive shame with him because he had a fun tag team with Lance Storm mm. at, one, at one point as well. And I watched... And nobody, I watched the Hardcore Heaven pay-per-view, the pay-per-view they have after this, and it's probably the best match on the show. And it's, and it's nothing spectacular, but it's an opener with him and Taz for the TV title. And it's good. And it's partly because, as we've said, it's got actual kind of proper transitions and proper wrestling in between. And it feels kind of nice. Now, probably at the time, it was the stuff that people weirdly would have hated because it didn't have any of the kind of car crash elements. Mm. But it's it's good fun to kind of go back and he's you kind of forget how young he was at this point in time and it feels very much in the case when he was like too much too soon he was kind of thrown into big companies at too young an age and he didn't kind of if he had kind of like his role within the triple threat was kind of like the best place for him to kind of be mm. as a position on the card as that kind of upper mid card heel and he could do it, and he could play comedy very well. And he and the promo he cuts is good. It's just that the kind of skip stuff kind of killed him in WWF before it even had a chance for him to to kind of get off. Mm. Yeah, kind of killed his credibility in general as well, didn't it? Um, bit what happens. Same thing, Shane Douglas, isn't it? He goes from being this ECW legend in his own mind to to being Dean Douglas, and then having to come back and claw back his uh, his credibility and constantly having that stink on him. Um, but yeah, I was a big fan of Candido. But to be fair, the match we got instead was all right. Like it was, you know, his lads done Rob Van Dam in a something of a. It was a messy match, is probably the uh, the way to put it. Um, kind it of. It was like, an RVD match from this point in time. Styles clash is probably what I'd say. Yeah, it was RVD yeah. trying to have his match and Lance Storm trying to do his thing and just getting dragged along for the, like you say, for the uh, the Rob Van Dam special. Uh, Lance Storm with his. Uh, with his ponytail, his rat tail, is that what you call it? The, that, the party that, in the back? I remember watching, yeah, the rat tail. <laughs> I remember the first time I watched this, my cousin had one of them rat's tails in the 90s, and I remember <laughs> thinking he looked like a... I don't know what a paedophile was at the time. But he <laughs> wow. I just remember thinking, what is that? And my mum absolutely slagging my auntie off for allowing him to have this weird rat's tail. He just looked strange. Like He looked like he should have been in... Um, he should look like he should have been one of the lost boys in Peter Pan or something, following Rufio around in Hook. Mm. Uh, it just looked odd. And when I remember me and my brother watching this a few years ago, being like, why the fuck has Lance Storm got a rat's tail? That's like, the most out-of-character thing for someone who's straight-laced mm. and is kind of Frank Grimes-like, like Lance Storm. <laughs> so I'm going for him. It just odd addition like what what possessed him to have this i remember tweeting him this would have been i reckon like 10 years ago so like early days of twitter i remember tweeting him up with a picture of the rat's tail saying what what the fuck are you up to mate no response somebody do it now somebody get the answer we must have a listener who lose last time oh god yeah do you know what's really odd about is you take away that tail how well he's aged and how much he kind of looks effectively like that, right? The bulk of that kind of career when he was in WCW, which I have to say I liked him. 
Me too. I thought he was a good upper mid card heel. He was the kind of person who fresh. They should have got a lot more behind it. Absolutely fresh. Whereas here, he's like yeah, the reason for it. And I, I kind of agree because where this kind of match falls down, particularly towards the end, for me is when they start getting chairs involved. <laughs> but really, fucking shits yeah. and giggles. And it, and it's the kind of stuff that just does not play to his strengths in no. the slightest. It kind of shows him up. Yeah. And it's bad because the crowd then end up shitting on him of it. And this is where we talk about the crowd being good. There are points in this crowd. There are points in this show where this crowd are not good. Well, my you take the chairs there, and they are the weakest chair shots anybody oh, has ever bad. seen. <laughs> yeah. Well, my take from it was like this is the match that led to mass CTE and concussions throughout wrestling because it's almost like the crowd are peer pressure in the wrestlers yep. to proper smack them with the chairs. Otherwise, they're going to get some kind of unintended heat in some way. But mm. then at the same time, it's almost like why the ending works, but it just feels completely unintentional because he pulls the, the first chair shot. I mean, I can't tell if he's like, oh, I got some heat for that. This could lead into a smart ending. So I'm going to pull, like, was it two more? Mm. And then when Van Damme actually does that kick and you get this massive cheer at the end, it's kind of because those previous chair shots were so weak and looked so bad that you get the big reaction at the end. But then you sort of start, I started thinking like, fucking hell, like, Bulls Mahoney didn't stand a chance after this, <laughs> did he? Like, it, seriously. The, the only problem with that psychology is oh. Rob Van Damme's supposed to be a heel, <laughs> which you kind of forget in yeah. his matches. Oh. Yeah. But I could imagine that being a planned spot. Like, I'm sure Landstorm must have known that's the... I mean, it happens to do out his ECW career. And to be fair to him, he's not one of these people who tries to pretend CTE was invented in, like, 2010. Like, he very well knew at the time it was a stupid fucking idea for Rob Van Damme to launch a chair at his head and therefore he knew that when he hit people back he wasn't going to be putting anything into it um yeah he was, he was ahead of his time i would say lads i think that's what it is and yeah he's he's far too uh it's far too he's grounded clever. and too responsible yeah for this uh for this ecw crowd in a in 1997 martin i, I think joe summed up the ecw crowd and fans perfectly there because that's all i mean Foley even did the promos about it didn't he how he didn't want to be hardcore anymore and that's all the fans wanted was bloodshed and that and happened in virtually every match it was like who hit a chair shot oh that wasn't hard enough and, and surely this were led on into roh as well i mean some of their insane matches you saw with sort of like uh kevin steen and el generico it was all about you know oh well we respect these because they smash each other over the head with chairs really hard well, there was that period in Ring of Honor as well after some of the CT studies with Dad and after uh, Chris Nowinski did his stuff when Nigel was the commentator. And I remember a Briscoe's hardcore match where they took chair shots to the head and you just had Nigel going, what are you doing, Mark? What are you doing, Jay? Like just completely breaking character mm. and getting angry on live commentary as a result of it. And that was like... 15, 16 years down the line after after this. But, yeah, I think that's the fault of that ECW crowd to some extent. They didn't feel like there was a... I'm not saying you go to a wrestling show and you should be, you know, really caring about the wrestlers necessarily. Like, you know, you've paid your money for your ticket. You're there to be entertained, I suppose. But there is that sort of element of them being like fucking wolves, just kind of <laughs> giving dogs abuse to various wrestlers in like sort of the most undeserved way possible. 
general, but I also think they changed wrestling crowds. Like, I think wrestling crowds became such a different beast around this period. Like, I remember there were those odd WWE shows and WCW shows in Philadelphia where you'd see, like, the straw hat guy in the front row and some of the other familiar uh, ECW guys. And they were trying to get the crowd chanting different things, reacting in different ways. And when you think about what you get a few years down the line where, like, mainstream wrestling crowds start becoming a bit more like this and some of the chants kind of catch on so it, they are it is sort of innovative from a presentation point of view and an in-ring point of view at this point in time as well and i think rvd as a wrestler was quite innovative at this point mm. but i just feel like he was a wrestler that overrated himself so much even at this point like i'm watching him and i'm thinking okay you're doing some innovative stuff but the stuff around this and the way you actually work with putting a story together in a match and the way that you work with the opponent isn't really that great. It feels very sort of self-centered. It feels like it's all about him. And it feels like he very much is into the idea of himself and what he can do as a wrestler at this point in time. And that was one of my biggest takes from this match. Weird chemistry, but mm. you could tell Lance Storm was letting him do a lot of what he wanted to do but yeah. I don't know I've never been 100% sold on Rob Van Dam and whenever I see 90s Rob Van Dam I always think that he needed to take some advice from someone he needed to listen to some advice and I always get the impression he's not very good at listening to the people it's, it's it funny really the oh, go on, Jerry Lynn I was, was going to say Jenny, Jerry Lynn Je- same thing Jerry Lynn is willing to put up is willing to go along with his shit willing to lose and willing to just be the other guy as an EJP. That's kind of the difference in yeah. that dynamic and why that, that kind of works so well. I was a, and to he be honest in the transitions and that and yeah, he makes sense he adds of that the spot. Yeah. That's he, it, yeah. He adds like kind of real know how mm. and craft to it, which Lance Storm at this point wouldn't have had. Because mm. he still what he would have only been wrestling sort of early he would have been breaking through in the early nineties. When does he go to war with Jericho? Is it ninety four or something like Sounds that? Sounds right. Yeah. Uh, no, they go they go to FMW in like ninety one, and then they go to war in like ninety four, ninety five. Yeah. I want to say, mm-hmm. and they had that Smoky Mountain run, didn't they? Yeah. Ninety four ish as well. Landstorm was Real good at this seekers. period. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Landstorm was good in this period. He just didn't, I don't know, seem as comfortable with Rob Van Dam as maybe Jerry Lynn is yeah. in there with him. But the one thing I'd say to your point though, Joe, is I do think it works. I do think Rob Van Dam dominating these matches and just doing his shit worked on like you know uh, i don't know uh, idiot fans like me in the day who would take that and not go oh what a shit worker rob van damme is i would look at this match and go oh look how much better rob van damme is than lance storm yep. what a star he is the best wrestler in the world and then when he went to do wf and he started getting toned down a bit more and started being a bit more repetitive with his spots. I was like, oh, Rob Van Damme's not as good as he used to be back in the day when he'd just do whatever the fuck he wants and just make moves up on the fly, like a bit like what Sabu <laughs> does. He still had that period, though, didn't he, when he first joined WWF in sort of like late 2001, and the crowd were really behind him. I remember that three-way, it's Austin, Van Damme, and Angle, I think, um, or one of the sort of like November pay-per-views, and the crowd are well behind him, and I was like, well, I think that was the uh, point you're making, Joe, is that the wrestlers in WWF, like Austin and Angle and that, were like, no, we're not going to sort of run around and let RVD do all these spots. And that's what got him a lot of heat backstage, wasn't it? Because he mm-hmm. thought he was, like, too unpredictable. And I think he'd, like, smashed a few people's noses in doing the uh, Angle didn't Van like Dominator. That. Yeah. 
he, yeah. he always has been, hasn't he? He's always been that. But at the same time, like if you were going to get, if they'd had him fully fit, if he hadn't done his leg in, which kind of, um, I think prevented bringing him in first of all, if they'd had the chance to kind of have him at that stage, like kind of be the figurehead of the company as the world champion, which he kind of was the de facto figurehead anyway. Like, you you still would have gone with him simply because of the crowd connection. Mm. He still would have been the person you would have actually gone with. Whether or not he was kind of a guaranteed draw is kind of harder to determine. Because in this case, is this the earliest example of the brand being the draw? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I would say so, definitely. Well, it was the three letters. It was the company support that you ultimately had. Mm. It's the first name of a company that the fans chant. I can't think of a... WWF chant or a WCW chant, let's say. Oh, that's like where it comes from, isn't it? That this, this is yeah. every other company doing it's just doing an impression of the ECW crowd. Absolutely, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, like I say, I to be honest, I in the time I thought Rob Van Dam was wasted in WWF and he could have been even better. But I don't know, maybe, maybe looking at it now as a grown up, I'm like, oh, maybe you know, I can see the uh, the limitations that were there with him. But one, one, actually, one thing though that I was surprised in seeing, like in the post match, he cooks a hell of a heel promo. Best promo I've seen Rob Van Dam ever cut. Like I know he's oh, doing the, the shooting at Paulie and all of that stuff, and he's talking about being Mister Monday Night, which, as I mentioned on the uh, the Canadian Stampede review, I never really got because I never bought Rob Van Dam as a WWF guy. Um, but I thought it was a very good promo, and given the circumstances, I remember I was reading today um, like the preview issue that Meltzer had written about barely legal, oh, yeah. where he says that it's a guarantee that Van Dam's going to WCW after this, and. He was annoyed that um, that he was a fill-in on the show and the rest of it, and he seemed to be very vocal. He was talking about he being very tense in the weeks leading up to it, hmm. like real nerves. But it also feels like Heyman feeding him a story and a narrative, yeah. which he goes along with. So at that point in time, you're kind of reading it, but you're also recognising what the source is. And in some ways, it feels familiar when Laura Koonsberg would spout stuff from Dominic Cummings. <laughs> and you just go, yeah. Why it's like well Dominic Dominic Cummins isn't under under any pressure tonight says Dominic Cummings <laughs> like, and in this case he's feeding like this stuff about ECW and the rest of it which you kind of think it makes sense for him to feed that story so he's kind of got that narrative of the big speech he does on the show on Beyond the Mat and the rest of it it kind of plays into Heyman as cult leader and cult of personality which at that point in time. It was kind of like what people considered about the booking. In the case of Paul Lee, you kind of push up the positives and you hide the negatives in these reports, isn't it? And it's just mm. kind of like Paul Lee creative genius, which is the story he's been running today. Mm. Yeah. Master worker. Always has been. Maybe that's yeah. why Vince likes him. Puppet master. That's what, uh, what Paul Lee was. But, uh, I mean, as far as that match goes, I gave it 2.75 again on Grapple. Um, again, mainly because I enjoyed going down Nostalgia Street and seeing Van Damme uh, hit his big stuff. But I didn't think much more of it as a match. How about you guys? 2.75. I enjoyed it in a weird way, but it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> I went three, so oh, I'm well, sorry. Oh, I definitely enjoyed it. Mm. Um, there's almost like a sort of car crash element with mm. Van Damme at this point that I quite enjoy. Like to me, it sort of felt a bit like a more car crashy WCW cruiserweight match from this sort mm. of era as well. With a few more high spots and chair shots and stuff. Like, and I, I'll get something out of this sort of match whenever I watch it. Definitely. Mm. How about you, Matt? 
Yeah, I'd go three because obviously it's better than the opener, but much like the opener, it's like a fun match, but then instantly forgettable. Mm. Yeah, that's it. Well, speaking of that, next up, <laughs> we had actually the, the highest rated match on the show, according to Grapple and according to, uh, to Meltzer, I believe. Uh, our, I, sp- I suppose uh, our offer match of the night, uh, where ECW again, head of the cave, doing a bringing in an entire other promotion and doing a doing a six man with with Michinoku Pro uh a few of these guys would uh, would turn up on uh, on Canadian Stampede that we watched uh, <laughs> a few weeks ago but yeah it was a uh, great Sasuke not Sasuke according to Joey Styles but I guess we uh, we found out where JR got that from he's well watched this tape and gone that's how you pronounce it and it's kind of <laughs> stuck uh, with Gran Hamada and who's the young boy Masato Yakas Shishiji was yeah. it? Yakushi. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Before before your time, yeah, JP, yeah. for the young boys, or were you a fan? <laughs> Not a clue who this bloke was. <laughs> he tried. He tries to kill himself in this match several times, though, doesn't he? Oh, he does. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. They're up against uh, the Kaintai group, who are kind of like imported i suppose because they wore blue they made them part of the blue world order uh terry boy dick tobo and takamichi uh like we say who does turn up on uh on canadian stampede later um i enjoyed it i thought it was fun it was very you know a respectful crowd like the you know the ecw crowd in some ways i've grown up i think the malenko guerrero series kind of smartened up a lot of their fan base whereas they didn't want to look like uncultured swines at times they were obviously uncultured swines at other times but when it came to stuff like this they tried to be respectful to the you know the japanese talent who have flown over and you know i've responded to the match uh i don't know i enjoyed it i thought it was a bit of a mess it didn't have a similar to a lot of matches on this undercard didn't have much structure to it really Uh, i don't think they did a very good job of I don't know, bottling the heat from that that loud crowd. I think they kind of lose them in, at certain points because the flow of them. The match isn't really there. Um, and you also get the best and the worst of uh, of Sasuke, I would say, in this match too. But all in all, it was fun and it was different. And it was something I would have loved to see. You know, it's something that maybe Ring of Honor and other indies picked up over the years as doing like offer matches like this. But, I, I, you know, I wish after this point, I know they did it with the, uh, the Mexican talent before but i wish maybe we got more of this in uh, in ecw's history because it did offer something really different to the card if uh, if nothing else martin yeah i think i just don't think they had the budget did they to keep flying in people and things like that and having these sort of like international exhibition matches i think you just mentioned there obviously they've done it with the luchadors and then they've done it by bringing you know sort of like and having a technical match sort of the likes of eddie guerrero and people like that coming in and having uh, something that was completely different to what ECW was known for. But I do remember this being the big talk of, of 97, this match, and how much everyone loved it. And, you know, we've seen a lot better in subsequent years, but I've got to say when, you know, towards the end of the match when they're hitting every move in the book, and, yeah, some of it is sloppy. I still did um, get a kick out of seeing all that before uh, Sasuke sort of, like, tied it up by pinning Taka. I did I did enjoy that sort of, like, final five-minute flurry where everyone's just, you know, doing everything that they can. Mm. How about you, Zip? What was it like watching this match in 97 is what I was kind of wondering. Like, what was your response to it then? Compared it was to like blow away. It was like, mm, you yeah. know, like I just said then, everyone, you know, everyone was talking about this match coming out of this pay-per-view and yeah, and, and watching it and you were just like, whoa, I've never seen stuff like this before. I was going to say at this point in time, I wouldn't have seen, because what it reminds me of is a Lucha six match. 
when yeah. you're watching it with from, all the kind of messy like the one goes from WCWJP, like the one we watched on um bash of the beach or something yeah because yeah. there was a match like that where it was it was just a lucha mess but it was different and it was different and that's what it kind of does there when you ask how it kind of felt, it, it just felt very different because it was so reckless and i wasn't still used to such kind of seeing this and it was fresh and it was new and there's a kind of exotic factor because mm. what is mishinoku pro at that point in time it would have been like you would have read very rarely snippets of them in power slam because it still would have been sort of difficult to go through and review a lot they did used to have some cool pictures of sasuke though i remember from 94 95 they had some really cool pictures of him flying over the ropes yeah yeah and and then the ones of him flying over the ropes with his hair like flying in the end you're like wow is this guy he looks awesome it yeah. was it was the J Cub that brought sort of more attention to Michinoku yeah. Pro as well because Michinoku Pro run in is it northern Japan on maybe the North Island because I think that they don't record Hokkaido. their shows do they? So, what were you saying, JP? I want to say it's Hokkaido, but I could be very wrong on that. Yeah, because they do. Where's see... WH Park when you need it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he'll fill in on this and inform us. You know, the the fountain of all uh, Japanese wrestling knowledge. Uh, but yeah, I think. With that, it seemed like they got more exposure from when I've kind of read up on wrestling history from the Jacob, and it was where people would have first seen the likes of Sasuke for the first time. Because I've always seen Michinoku Pro as this kind of really innovative but quite provincial promotion, if anything, hmm. that kind of existed in its own bubble, but brought these really great wrestlers out of it and who were a real influence on the style going through the rest of the 90s and kind of into the indie generation of the juniors in the early 2000s, if anything. So is it kind of like in a sort of precursor to, is it Tori Yumon that would follow on? Yeah. That, that would then lead Dragon to Dragon Gang. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, to some extent, yeah. And it, you can see the influence there as well. Like, for this match, watching it, um, like I, I probably would have first watched this match, I reckon mid-2004 I reckon or 5 I would have first seen this. So it was just before um, the Ring of Honor six-mans, which obviously Gabe, I think, lifted from this idea, from this show, when he would have been working for ECW. Mm. And I remember thinking it was really good at the time. But what I found watching it now, right, is when I was watching this, I was thinking, right... Three or four of the best wrestlers on this show are in this match. Mm. Like, the only other wrestler I would put in league with these guys on this show is Terry Funk. And that's due to his experience and his mind and the way he's able to tell a story and the way he completely understood his character at this point in time. Like, watching Grand Hamada, that guy was fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, talk about a guy who completely reinvented himself, but was so crisp, was so smooth. His technique, the way he flew around the ring... The way he held the match together at times as well, I was genuinely impressed and was kind of amazed when I found out his age. Like he reminded me of like a what Jonathan Gresham kind of is now in terms of his size and in terms of his sort of technique, but also his dynamism as well. Like, I thought he was probably the best wrestler on the show, along with Takamichinoku for my money. Um, yeah, what I also found from this as well is you can just see the absolute difference in quality and in training and working and style. And then you know what? I'm going to say it. Respect for wrestling and respect for the kind of discipline of pro wrestling. Because 
as much as I kind of enjoy the Sandman and Sabu, I don't think they've got the same level of respect for the discipline of professional wrestling. I think that wrestling is a job that they like and they do, and they can have a good piss up with the boys. And I don't, well, Sabu probably has a good smoke, Dunny, and he's following <laughs> his uncle's footsteps and all the rest of it. But these guys, like those relentless hours in dojos, you can see it here. And you can see that the transitions between moves, the way that they communicate with one another, the way that they're, for the most part, on the same page mm. is very different to a lot of the other matches on the card. And there's a confidence in the workers that they're working with. There's a generosity factor there. For me, this is the type of wrestling that I like like a lot more than the rest of what we saw on the card, if anything, because I don't feel like there's some sort of like political situation and tension going on between the two wrestlers or sorry the six wrestlers in this that are in the match together and for me this was probably I would say the second best match on the card probably the best match on the card as a result of that but yeah it was cool to see something that felt fresh that felt innovative and that showed I'll say it again a real respect for for wrestling at this point in time if anything and there was a dynamism and an explosiveness there that wasn't there on the rest of the card at all I thought Interesting. What do you give it on grapple then, Joe? Do you go high on it? So I only I went three point two five. It sounds like I was much higher on it, but yeah, I, I think say, it that's what scene... I gave it. But I don't feel that strongly. <laughs> Maybe I should lower so, my rating. <laughs> I don't feel strongly about the match. So as a match, I kind of agree with what you said, Benno. Mm. But I think the ability of the wrestlers, the technique, mm. and the discipline that these guys have got mm. is miles ahead of what else is on the card. If you ask me, yeah, I get that. Um, what about you two? Were you two any higher or lower on it? I went three and a half on it. Mm-hmm. I I went three and a half, and to kind of mirror a lot of those points, I've, I've written down here. It's funny you mentioned Gran Hamada and Crisp because that's what I've got written down on here. I think there were some points where he was just sort of working in his arm locks. It was this show needed for me another one of these types of matches, just a match that was built primarily about wrestling mm-hmm. that there wasn't. Because there's so many kind of different things that are trying to go on on this show. And Joe mentions about the politics. So, like, even with straight-up matches, there's a kind of angle that has to happen afterwards. Like, there's always this kind of stuff. And this kind of stands alone as, like, it's a messy match. But by this card, for me, it was, I, get, I went three and a half. And for me, it was like the match of the show. Wow. Says a lot, that doesn't hit the three and a half the match for the show. Um, it really does. Yeah, it's tied for me, but I wouldn't go, wouldn't argue too much that it's the best match on the show. It's kind of crazy, that really. Um, the grapple average is, is a lot higher for it. Uh, you're closer to four stars on grapple, 3.71. Uh, I think it was, until we all punched our ratings in, I think the average literally was four stars because it is quite a, a well regarded match, this. Um, but I think to your point, Joe, I think if I was watching this at the time and place, I think I would have just been dazzled by how good the dudes in the match were and how different it all was, you know, to your point, JP. And I can see, you know, why in the time I think Meltzer gave it 4.25. Um, I can I can get that, to be honest, uh, with time and context. Um, it keeps a pace as well. Mm. And I think some of the rest of this card, there is no pace and there's no flow to the matches. And the match that we're going to come on to after this... Oh, yes. <laughs> me. Like, it's night... Then two matches are night and day. Like, you come out of it really appreciating the wrestlers and the style and the technique that you saw in the match before when you come to a match where uh, the guy who was kind of the face of the company at times 
overrates himself, possibly more than any man has overrated himself in wrestling history. So, yeah, I think that was possibly an influence on it. Sorry, yeah, for me, anyway. <laughs> well, we should talk it, because, yeah, next up was uh, Shane Douglas's big grudge match with Pitbull too. I remember the, of the ECW TV I saw around this time, this was more one of Iden memory. Like, they ran this angle into the ground on ECW TV. This was the big moment when he breaks the, the neck of Pitbull 1. Uh, with the single arm DDT, um, heavy build for the revenge by by Pitbull too. I think forgotten in that though is as good as Shane Douglas is as a promo, and he's to be for me, he's one of the best wrestling promos of all time. Given the time and right. place, given the time and place, because a lot of his promos don't really age because it's like you know, Dick Flair. I'm gonna I'm gonna do I want to sh- mm. like what Taz's stuff was. I'm gonna shoot fight you. Come to the ECW arena. We'll show you where the real big boys play that type of stuff. But he's a fucking fantastic talker. I think part of it was because he believed in himself a bit, again, a bit like Taz. Believed in his gimmick maybe too much. But he wasn't a very good wrestler. And Pitbull too really wasn't a very good wrestler. And yeah, for me, this is the the absolute worst match of the night. And it did. To, as much as I think it had been well built up on the TV and felt like a real grudge match, it didn't have any of the heat that you'd imagine a big grudge match would have. Mainly because... The match was just so goddamn fucking terrible. I don't know if you were any, uh, if you were anywhere near higher on that, Martin. I don't think anybody could be really. I think this is a this is a rough match to watch back now. Yeah, I mean, um, I've had, I'd obviously seen Shane Douglas in WCW, and then the next time I saw him, he was uh, in that three way night line was crossed, and then um, I sent you guys a link uh, the other week to the promo he cuts after that show in '94, and. It, like you said, absolutely brilliant promo, and he's there talking about it. and I'm like, wow, this guy should have been used more in WCW, you know, and drinking the Kool-Aid a bit, and then obviously he disappears to WWF and then comes back, and I remember it seemed like Heyman was wanting to make him the guy, but just having these matches, and they were terrible, and like you say, they hammered this story home about the, the neck break and stuff, so it's this big grudge match, and you're all geared up for it, and how do you stop it by Pitbull 2 doing uh, chin locks? <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. And, and then the rest of the match is just a complete mess. And it's just, I mean, I, I said off air that I, I found myself nodding off watching this one. And it really, wow. I mean, until Rick Rude turns up at the end, it's just, it's just a mess, isn't it? Nothing seems to like fit together. And I know we've said that about ECW as a whole, but especially in this one, especially because they play so much emphasis on the storyline and the fact that they gave this you know they gave this match so much time because it, it must be the longest match on the show oh, by so far long. i would have thought it's like yeah. 20 minutes oh. i think <clears throat> like, minutes i just, I just thought about sorry yeah and i just thought about the fraser quote if less is more just think how much more more will be and that just sums up this match because, like, just we didn't need more of this match and we could have easily cut about 10 minutes off it mm. I think what makes it worse is being in lockdown during a global pandemic. (laughs) Time is already dragging enough to have to sit through a 20 minute long Shane Douglas match. And it's, it's absolutely awful. I know Mm. uh, Joe would have, I can see, imagine I'm just looking at my notes for it. And there's this thing on it. Why do they wrestle? It's a blood feud. So, so dull. (laughs) Pitbull 2 is wank, which doesn't help. Um, (laughs) Everything is slow. Like, it's like all of the worst aspects of ECW. It's a complete mess. 
it starts off in completely the wrong way. It never really kind of goes anywhere. They have the bit with Gary Wolf coming in. And the truth is the pit, pit bulls were shit. I think Pitbull 2 might have been dead within about a year of this show. Wow. And I, and he was one of the ones apparently, this it feels so, uh, allegedly he was selling a lot of the steroids, mm. which you're looking at him, you kind of think, yeah, that kind of works out. That's the case. <laughs> it's so fucking awful. It's like time sand still. I won't lie. I ended up giving this one and a half stars. So did I half think it's too st- high? I went half one. Half a star yeah, is for Francine, well. where I just embraced 18-year-old me and went, yeah, you were justified in fancying her completely rotten. So you got half a star for what was a, a, like an outfit, which is what a bra and a thong, along with some sort of negligee over the top of it. I don't the stuff they start chanting at her as well. Like she has herpes. I remember hearing at one point. I yeah. had an AIDS chant at one point yeah. as well. Yeah. I d I don't know if there's like she's a crack whore. Of yeah, course. That was a common one about any woman in ECW. Whenever a woman came out of ECW, they'd always chant oh, that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you're just like, Jesus fucking Christ. And everyone's joining in on it. It's it's absolute shit. And <laughs> even Rick Rude, who I love, Me too. there's no chance, like no chance of him fucking saving it, saving the anger. And in fact, they do as good as they can do, and the crowd wake up <clears> for that <throat> angle at the end, mm. um, which I remember from it. But yeah, fuck me. Look, uh, credit where credit is due to Rick Rude. Like for me, he was the highlight of the match, not because it was Rick Rude, but, but I loved his leather jacket. It reminded yeah. me of the kind of leather jacket that lots of cops wore in the bill in the late nineties, <laughs> like your proper like cid style leather jacket like jim carver when he was in cid on like doing a case of burnside might be wearing the leather while burnside had a more respectable overcoat on so i got a kick out of that leather jacket because you don't see leather jackets like that anymore and i'd love them to make a comeback so good on rick rude for his cracking dress sense in 1997 but as a match fuck me (laughs) like i went one star and I can't remember if I don't know if I've ever gone one star in a twenty-minute match ever. Like I don't reckon I have. If if Gareth's got some, I don't know, algorithm where he can work out Joe's average rating compared to match times, he might be able to prove something. <laughs> I recommend he doesn't do that because it sounds quite time-consuming. But my God, was it bad! Like I was so bored, and I'd seen this match before. I remember it being boring, but I had to watch it again just to remind myself of how dull Shane Douglas was and how much he overrated himself. Like that man, Ben. You said about his promos. I've always found his promos like he can talk. The delivery's there. But I always find them kind of boring. Like, I'm not denying he can talk. But I'm always kind of just like, yeah, do another promo, are you, Shane? Think this is good, (laughs) do you? Like, he he reminds me of like, I don't know, when Randy Orton talks. There's a delivery there. But is it good? Not like, ah, whatever. Like, technically, I suppose it is. But as a person, he fucking bores me. And I'm not into it as a result of that. Like, this was stodgy rubbish. And it's almost like Shane Douglas was seen as, like, one of the workers in this company. And he's given this. And you're like, this guy was not a worker. Like, he could work when he was in there with other guys. I like those tag matches in WCW when it's him and Steamboat against Austin yeah. and uh, Pillman. Like, I think that's a really underrated tag feud. But whenever I watch anything of his in ECW, I'm always like... Was this guy good? Because I cannot see it. And 
Ah, oh, I, I don't know. I I was wanting to skip through this. I couldn't wait till it ended. <laughs> and Martin, I was going to say, do you remember when me and you saw Shane Douglas in New Orleans? <laughs> Did you? Vaguely. I remember seeing, um, was it Ricky Morton? We saw Ricky Morton and then we saw Shane Douglas straight afterwards. Ricky Morton was chatting up some like woman in her 60s. I think he lucky. had a group of women in the 60s around him, didn't he? Of course he did. Yeah, he was like an old school player, basically. And then we <laughs> saw Shane Douglas outside a hotel. Oh, uh, yeah. Looked... I think because we were walking so quickly, it was kind of like, oh, look, blah blah's over there. And now look, <laughs> Shane Douglas is there. He looked an absolute wreck. Like, he yeah. looked awful. He had a pair of red jogging bottoms on, I remember. <laughs> like, it's like, like, bright red. Like, they looked like... It looked like he bought them in 1997, <laughs> honestly. Was this 2018, uh, would it have been, then? Yeah, 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 yeah. Cause he, was, I, he looked awful. Because I last saw him in person in a pub in Birkenhead in 2016, oh. and I thought he looked very well. <laughs> I went to a... If anyone didn't listen to our old Indie Corner podcast, I went to a, a live Q&A with Shane Douglas, literally in a pub in Birkenhead. Like, it was it was me, maybe 10 other fans at most, literally sat in the corner of a pub while Shane Douglas, pint in hand, regaled us with stories about Dick Flair and ECW and WCW. Basically, it felt like he was getting paid by the pints because he was just down and he was just in the corner down at <laughs> those pints. It really was like going out for a night out with Shane Douglas. It was well worth it, to be honest. But I thought he looked great there. Uh, I'd had a few beers myself. What was he drinking out of curiosity? It was just pints, so I'm guessing it looked like it could have been a carling or you know, something shit. Oh, shit like Something that wouldn't work for Joe. I mean, it's a Birkenhead pub, what you expect. You're not going to do really any better than that. I remember you? in that pub we went to before that Tranmere game, <laughs> and that looked like a that was a bit of a ropey pub. I like that pub. It, it was, was all right. right. It was all right, and that's but like large parts of Birkenhead is pretty nondescript, though, isn't it? But that's that's also he's an American wrestler. What's his barometer for good rest for good beer like Budweiser and mm. Coors Light? Oh, yeah, light, yeah. mate. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I, yeah. I would say with Shane Douglas, my favourite role for him. Is actually commentary. Is it Heatwave '98? He does the commentary on. Yes, think so. Yeah, and, and in, he did a bit for TNA as well, didn't and he? And in WCW he too, he was very good. And uh, that was kind of the role. I remember in TNA he did backstage interviewing, and he was actually quite good at it because that's where the cadence and the delivery for him, as mm. part of his promos, really kind of works. And he was kind of sticking to a script for it. Mm. And even uh, and I've got very fond memories of sort of Heatwave '98. I obviously, haven't gone back and watched it, but it. it for me, like him on commentary, he really kind of adds something to it because uh, we haven't mentioned the commentary much on this because Joey Styles gets a lot of praise for this performance because it's by himself. It's the different kind of matches and everything. I won't lie. There are points where I thought, fuck me, he's grating. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a template for Mauro Ranallo. It's what <laughs> it kind of feels like with him kind of teeing off. But... um yeah, time and place again I, though for for Joey Styles. Like it, he never worked yeah, on Raw, did he? Like it was wrong. He shouldn't have been the Raw commentator. It just didn't sound right. He did. He did a very good. Considering he was basically in Paul Heyman's mum's basement, doing the the commentary for these shows and carrying the show on his own. I, he, he doesn't work anywhere else, but I think in this environment, he was very good. It, uh, not to try and do him down because he is like one of my favorite. I'm trying to remember the commentaries. I think the one with him and Douglas might have been the best. I remember him and Gertner being a commentary team. Him and Don Callis. Oh yeah, yeah, they were good. CNN. And he kind of always did work well given the product, and he does do well at trying to hide lots of stuff. Mm. But 
I think there's just a point where you're watching this show, and he didn't know if I watched Hardcore Heaven afterwards. I was just like, oh, bloody hell. I've just heard this bloke talking kind of non-stop for six hours. I, th- I think on, on a lot of the uh, the TVs on the network, and I think some of these pay-per-views, because the music is hard, I don't know if the, what the word is, but it's like it's part of the file. Like a lot of the time when they're having to dub over with other music, Joey Styles has had to literally re-record a lot of that commentary. So Lord knows what that's like <laughs> compared to like watch, at least watching him from the time. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a mountain of a job, isn't it? But I liked him. He was on a lot of like me and you watched some of the TVs after this, didn't we, Joe? And he's teamed up with Rick Rude, which isn't a very good combo. Um, no, but, Rick Rude was not a good commentator on those no. shows, was he? It felt it like just a job for the boys, all. that didn't it? Like what was what was the game getting Rude in? Because he was never going to wrestle. He was just kind of there to be... He, basically, in this period, he gets a job in ECW. Then he gets a job <laughs> in the WWF, just standing around doing nothing as well. And then he gets a job in WCW, standing around and doing nothing. Like, he did well in this period, to be fair. Um, I mean, he did was die he eventually. Was he not going to come back in WCW? Was he not planning for an in-ring return? Oh, like I think he any? was... Yeah, because he was a Lloyd's of London guy, wasn't he? So I think maybe... Yeah. Maybe that's what he was telling oh. them all. He was telling Paulie, oh, yeah, eventually I'll wrestle for you. And he just never really planned on it. What? On the hard yeah, he team. wanted Bischoff to pay off his Lloyds of London thing, and it was like 850 grand, and Bischoff was like, <laughs> fuck off, mate. <laughs> yeah, on the hardcore TV we watch, Beto, mm. he says, I've just signed a two-year contract, and I'm really yeah, happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what the fuck happened there? Because like it must be like a month later he's part of DX, isn't he? Mm, yeah, it is. For that is. brief period. It, bizarre stuff. Like, I'd, I'd like to know more about what like the get-out clause is in that contract were potentially perhaps that was a little bit of the uh Heyman vince relationship working in vince's favor there possibly yeah plus Heyman probably doesn't have the money to sue him and i'm sure those contracts weren't worth the uh, the paper they were written on to be fair being uh paul Heyman, i'm sure there were get out clauses all over the show um, yeah because didn't raven like debut at bash of the beach like and he still had like a month left on his ecw contract and they were go. like well he won't sue us anyway because it'll be too expensive <laughs> for him. yeah what are you gonna do uh, amazing. His, his dad, his dad could only deal with so many lawsuits at any one time. <laughs> that I was going to say as well. The security guards Shane Douglas came out with. Do you remember they redid this in um, WWECW later on, where they had the Bashams as the heads of security for the Big Show when the Big Show was ECW champion? Like they never, the Bashams never took their helmets off, so you, you knew it was them, but you weren't allowed <laughs> to see them. But it was just a complete retread of what they were trying to do with Shane Douglas here, basically. Mm. Like it seemed, it seemed like pure Heyman to just go, ah, oh, let's get a couple of like faceless guys, throw these leather jackets on them, throw some helmets on them, and yeah, they can just be security, basically. Yeah, it got us the big turn, didn't it, at the end with um, who was it? Who, who turned at the end? Nine one one. Nine one one. That was it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I suppose that was the which the Brian's the Brian Lee. It was wasn't number one. It was Brian Lee. Fake Undertaker. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. fake Undertaker. Right. Yeah, Mister Mister ECW Choke. Stay away, mate. You're a big fan of Brian. Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. More of a Brian Adams man, mate. <laughs> the the, the singer or the wrestler? Clark, man, I'll, I'll die. Oh, the wrestler all day, mate. The wrestler all day. <laughs> Brian Clark as well. I Is like Brian Trump? Clark, JP. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Anywho. Um, so yeah, that was that was a mess. We then went on to <laughs> what was supposedly one of the big matches of the night. Like this match, Taz and Sabu, is mythical in how big it was. 
It was built for so fucking long. Like, JP and Martin did, like, at the time, was it? did it feel like they, they waited too long? Because it felt to me like for this match that gets built up, I remember the first time I saw it thinking, the, the heat wasn't really that, that, it wasn't really that hot in the crowd for it. It was in the middle of the show, which was weird, considering they'd waited so long to do the match. And really, again, it was a bit of a mess. It just, I mean, I know it's a Zabu match, so that's kind of par for the course, but it really, to me, watching it even now, never felt like this big match that it was that it was always advertised as and, and saved for this big, big ECW pay-per-view for. Yeah, I think it was about three years, the build for this one. And obviously, these two sort of like personified ECW in sort of like the mid to late 90s. They were the two, you know, homegrown ECW guys and then them finally facing off against each other. And I completely agree with you. I think it obviously couldn't build up to like three years, three years worth of hype. And and I just thought it was too much of a styles clash as well. And I remember a lot of people being disappointed at the time from a power slam because obviously they were big fans of ETW. I remember Finn Mines right up saying, you know, there was no way this could live up to the hype behind it, but it definitely didn't. And I completely agree with you. The crowd, I don't think the crowd's that hot all the way through the show, to be honest with you. There's a lot of periods of silence to say, um, you know, the ECW crowd is known as like a really good atmosphere and really vocal. And I think all the way through the show, there's a lot of periods of silence. But yeah, yeah, it's like you say, with Sabu, you know, it was always going to be a bit of a mess. And I just think it was too much of a styles clash for these two, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, and I think it was yeah. kind of always going to be that on paper, wasn't it, JP? Yeah, it felt like they didn't really plan this match out, considering how long it was. And I think the presentation doesn't help. Mm. I don't think it helps Sabu just appears in the ring. Mm. In some ways, what it should have been is the way Taz comes out um, is, is very good. And the way that they... The way that they transform him overall from the Tasmaniac mm. into putting him on commentary and turn him into this guy, that's like a masterful bit of booking. And another thing that Meltzer mentions is there's a lot of tension because a New York crew is kind of, which Heyman has, which is Taz, the Dudleys, and I think the Eliminators. Mm. They're considered the New York crew. And like the way that he is presented is really good. But I think Sabu just sort of turns up and... A lot of it initially is kind of Taz really destroying Sabu for, for like the beginning of the match. And I think it just needed to start off kind of wild. Mm. And it doesn't. And, it, and you're kind of thinking, well, why wouldn't you think that's the best way to go? If you're trying to get heat with that crowd, that's kind of what you wanted to see. This build up of people tearing each other apart. And like the Douglas Pitbull match, it doesn't really go that way. It's not as bad as the Douglas Pitbull match, um, partly because it's not as long. And I, I, I've got very I've got a soft spot for Taz around this time. And I think ultimately what they did with him is as good a job as you could do really with a wrestler at that point in time. I think they got as much out of him as you reasonably could ever get. Mm. Um, but it's just not a very good match. And like you say, there's just dull parts. There's parts where there's just really nothing happening. Um, and then the turn at the end, Mm. just makes no sense. Yeah, why, did, really, why don't they we, do it in the match? Why is it after the match? Why is it after he's already lost? Why does Fonzie then join Sabu? Why didn't he help him win the match? Wouldn't that make more sense? He says he's lost loads of money on him. And you're like, what? So, and why is he already wearing the Sabu t-shirt? <laughs> yeah, it makes no sense, yeah. He's obviously planned it ahead of time. So, like, what? Mm. It was just overbooked. Says, 
you three years for fuck's sakes mm. and a lot of that is kind of sabu no showing ecw yeah. and then getting banned for a bit and then paulie having him come back and that old bloody rigmarole that seems to last around that time mm. but yeah it's it's i don't think it's necessarily bad and i kind of like the kind of stiffness to it <clears throat> as well mm. like particularly around like sabu's nose but really is this sabu a lot different from the version you saw at Bootle. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was thinking out of various points. I was going. Some like the ECW stars of the past are touring Merseyside. Honestly, <laughs> like to, to get to see like Sabu over the road from Bootle Strand in the Ledger Centre, where I used to play badminton on a Monday, Tuesday, and then on the Saturday, Sabu's there fl- slinging chairs around. This is like, oh, oh, come on, that's not a Tory spot. Give me a break, JP. Uh, <laughs> maybe it is, actually. It's a little bit Tory. bit Lib Dem. Let's say it's a Lib Dem sport. Uh, <laughs> um, love, you, love you, love your shuttlecock, dude. I, I do a little bit, yeah. Um, it, was, it was weird, though. Like, it was so... Because this is, like, Sabu, this wrestling legend, and he was on, like, this family show with Tiny Iron and, like, a Power Ranger... And like he's just he's coming out of the changing rooms that I use again to get a shower after I play badminton or go in the gym. And there's Sabu just like knocking around. And he literally, honestly, JP, he had a match probably as good as this one in that he just did all his spots, chairs, tables on a family show where I was probably the oldest person in the audience and everyone else there was about six. He's still doing it, still doing that. He's Sabu. That's kind of the story of this match too. He just does what he does. He's Sabu. He's going to make his spots up on the fly. Doesn't matter if it works or not. Doesn't matter if this match has been built up for three years. He hasn't spent three years thinking about this match. He spent the three seconds while he's running the ropes, about to do something to Taz. That's when he comes up with the spots for his match. And yeah, he's exactly the same in the present day as well. He's uh, he's never going to be a different wrestler, Sabu. It's crazy to me he's had this longer career that he was doing this even in WWE, like, what, 10 years, 10, 12 years ago when he was in the uh, WWE CW? Like, and other matches with John Cena? Like, it's so odd, the career Sabu's had. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'll be honest, I thought this match was complete shit. Oh, wow. Um, and I- and I have every time I've watched it, like I, I remember hearing all about this rivalry, seeing the build up and then they go out there and there's no tension at all. There's no intensity to it. It's kind of rough around the edges. Like a lot of the offense doesn't really get any reaction. Like Tez is Tez. Taz is trying to do this like pseudo MMA stuff at points. And you're kind of like, okay, like maybe you could say you were ahead of your time a little bit, but it's not working. And I don't know. I just, I don't rate Taz. I never have. And it feels like Sabu. I'm going to say it's another one where I'm going to say like, I feel like ECW was really held back by the very few voices that existed within the company. So a lot of the times these matches work because the crowd get what they want and they seem to just want like car crash stuff basically. But one of the things I say about modern wrestling, WWE is the overproduction of it. And it feels like this is almost underproduced. It feels like the likes of Sabu and RVD could do with listening to a couple of the voices and taking some advice from a few older, older, wiser heads to some extent and sort of taking some advice on how to work, little things into their matches and how to build intensity in their matches and you see like Sabu going to FMW you see RVD going to All Japan and I sort of think like 
what did they learn there about like match structure and about placing certain spots and getting the most meaning out of different spots in the matches? And I know it was a different style and a different era, but one of the things I end up thinking when I come out of these ECW shows and I watch them is, did ECW and being a mainstay in ECW hold a lot of these guys back because it was kind of that singular vision of Paul Heyman without many other voices and a lot of the guys weren't working as in as many other places at the same time where they were learning. Whereas, say, when guys were in Ring of Honor, they were working around the circuit, learning from all different voices. They were learning from people who had been mainstays in companies in the 90s as well. So you think about, say, Tracy Smothers' influence in IWA Mid-South and then a lot of the talent who went into Ring of Honor. And it just I just sort of think, like, where else were these guys working? Who else were they listening to? Who else were they taking seriously? Or were they so into the idea of EC and did they drink the the Paul the Paul Heyman Kool Aid and believe in themselves and believe in ECW so much that it actually held them back as well-rounded in-ring talents? And for me, this is the prime example of that match. Nothing felt fluid. Nothing hung, hung together. Yeah, they did the spots that you expected them. That I've seen a million times. And you know, what? I quite enjoy Sabu. Like uh, there was a Sabu uh, Two Cold Scorpio match and a Raw that I watched in preparation for the Canadian Stampede show. Fucking awesome match. Loved it. One of the best matches I've seen in a 97 Raw. But it felt like he might have had a different voice in his ear while he was at that Raw. I don't know that. But it just feels like there's a kind of arrogance to not listening to advice and having that kind of singular vision here that has held back the in-ring ability of a lot of these guys long-term, in my opinion. I think um, as much as Sabu personified ECW, I think out of everybody, he was one of the few who wasn't drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean, as JP said there, he'd miss shows all the time if he was getting paid more money for a tour of Japan and stuff. And I think he was just like, yeah, pay me and I'll slip into a table and things like that. But I don't... And as far as interviews, you know, um, looking back at ECW, he's hardly like the guy, like, you know, what you'd get from... um, Bubba Ray Dudley and the like going on about, you know, what a family ECW and that. He really doesn't seem to give a shit about it. I think, I I mean, more from an in-ring style in that he didn't have to improve as a worker Mm. and he didn't have to kind of diversify what he could do and extend what he could do in order to kind of exist. So because of his limitations as a worker, when you put him in a big match like this that's been built to where you've got to deliver on a big stage and a big pay-per-view, He's incapable of it because he's so limited as a worker. I'm sort of mean it from that point of view, if that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, you would assume it's the sheep that he would be listening to and trusting mm. on things. I was also going to say, in fairness, he's probably off his tits. <laughs> yeah. Well, which is another <laughs> thing. Say that about this roster. <laughs> uh, yeah, you would do with it. With Taz, I really, I mean, I'm a bigger fan than you. Uh, Joe of Taz but I kind of really think he grew into the role and I've got a lot of fondness for like the Bigelow stuff and that's probably one of the examples where you've got an old experienced head in there kind of telling who wrestled in the main event of a Wrestlemania if nothing else giving them that kind of experienced hand and there's almost a gap from when they were bringing in like I'm trying to think of when they were when they would bring in people like uh, Steve Williams and they would, you know, they would bring in like the Steiners and stuff like that. Did they bring in Arn Anderson as well? Yeah, him and Bobby Eaton did a couple of shows. But wasn't that some yeah. trade with WCW for mm. they were using someone, if I remember rightly, I can't remember the exact I don't know if it's details. Public Enemy or something like that. 
know. Yeah, um, Hanson did a couple of shows as well. Like having no, like they don't really have these figures around this time, and it's kind of strange. It's probably the worst time for them to debut on pay per view, given this roster and given kind of what we know in hindsight. That you kind of, if they'd ended up on pay per view, like if they'd ended up with the kind of roster they have, more sort of ninety eight, ninety nine, I think you get some better overall shows. But yeah. then. As we found on this experience, like I don't trust my memory of that time because I was 19 years old. <laughs> and all of those drugs you the... were doing as well. Well, exactly. They weren't <laughs> going to take them. They weren't going to take themselves, Ben. And, and as I said to you at the start of the show, watching this is like going back and reading Loaded. I enjoyed it at the time, but the stories about Carlos the Jackal aren't nearly as interesting. Yeah, and it's. It's it's kind of troubling with the kind of paparazzi style and kind of leering over when you go, oh my god, this doesn't stand the test of time, <laughs> does it? No. And that's what this is. I... Were you a regular loaded reader? Uh, not for a particularly <laughs> long amount of time. It took a bit of time to like, think about oh, that, JP. <laughs> well, not really. I couldn't stand things like FHM and Nuts and Zoo were never like. Oh, that was a bit later, though. That yeah. was later on. Yeah. Teenager was Nuts and Zoo. Loaded kind of had the pretense of the wacky stories to go alongside with it. So <laughs> it's like, it's like here is this kind of titillating piece. Is an interview with Sean Ryder and Black Grape. You know, you've kind of got all this kind of stuff going on at the same time. A, and it's I kind can't of believe like you're using the excuse of you they had some good interviews in there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why you bought Playboy. Don't, don't get me wrong. I was looking at the women. <laughs> <laughs> Take that as a given. And there's no point lying and trying to pretend that that wasn't the case. Appreciate but it was like, it's like, like Benno, you just said, it was the Playboy argument. Yeah. Oh, there's an interesting article. <laughs> Not really that interesting. You re- More like some journalist getting fucked up in a jungle somewhere. You just enter the letters page, JP. That's all it is. <laughs> but I, I would say to like to the point of the conversation with Savu and Taz, like I would say the thing about ECW that like, you see when you get older is it's all away. Like Taz is this super shoot fighter, great wrestler. For for what we can look at in 2020 eyes and say he's not that good. I can't say it didn't work at the time because the people at the show and watching the show on pay-per-view believed he was that good like I did with Rob Van Dam. With Sabu, he had ye- he had years before ECW and years after to be someone else and he never was. To be honest, I think Sabu is just being Sabu in ECW. I'm sure Paul Heyman had a big influence on his style, but I don't think he was ever going to be anything else. Um, for Taz, I think there was, he was definitely... I mean, regardless of how high or low you think of Taz, and I think I'm closer to you, JP, on Taz, maybe than Joe, you've got to say he was underutilised once he did leave ECW. Like, that Royal Rumble debut with Kurt Angle is one of the best WF debuts of all time, and then it goes fucking nowhere, and they put him in a bin bag, and that becomes his gimmick, uh, because he's short, and that's it. I still think there was something WF could have done with him, and I do think... I wouldn't, I wouldn't oversell Taz like ECW would, but I wouldn't undersell him either. I think he was, on the quiet, a solid enough wrestler. Uh, but yeah, I think my overall point is, again, it's horses for courses. I think this is this is what worked in ECW. So this is, this is how these dudes were presented. And I couldn't argue that it didn't work at the time for the people. I think, But I do think there's a, a point to what you said, Joe, about you know it translating elsewhere and about, you know, 
Bischoff coming in and, and raiding people and, and assuming, you know, they were going to get over to the level they did in ECW and it, and it not always happening. Um, and the same happened in the other way with, with WWF. I think this was, for a lot of these guys, I think this was always going to be the peak of their career, even if maybe I'd make a, a slight exception for some. I think for me, uh, and I appreciate the gimmick more now, but I think at the time, because me and my brother had started... Our local library had all the uh, UFC, you know, UFC one with like Hoist Gracie and Jason DeLucia and people like that. And we were watching oh, them around the same me. time as well. Mm. And so this shoot fighter gimmick, never, I never really bought it. I obviously appreciate it more as a wrestling character now. But at the time I was like, nah, I don't buy this guy as being the shoot fighter, especially when you're watching this all, you know, quote unquote real stuff Chemo. on the other side. All that stuff. Yeah. Mm. That's some fucking library, by the way. I <laughs> know, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was like Robin Library had all these fucking UFC. I think they had UFC 1 to 6 in, in to rent out. And a load of like metal tapes that I could rent out and then yeah. tape myself. Did That's it have a, a good video library as well? Yeah, like, pretty much. I think point... they had a lot of the latest releases and things like that. Oh, yeah. It's a complete aside. Libraries, they were fucking cracking back then. It's since oh. been demolished. And there might, and there might have been a lad now. stinking with piss in the corner, but you kind of accepted it as part of the general <laughs> Yeah. My library was nothing like that. It was just books as far as the eye could see. And I remember the late 90s, they started getting a few tapes in later, a few DVDs, but nothing like that. Mm. I reckon the guy, one of the people working there was clearly a UFC fan, oh, yeah. always mm. curious about it, saw it to kind of get in and was like, yep, I'm getting that. It sounds like my local video shop because my local video shop had basically UFC one to six, and that was it. But it was there, and I rented it because I was a wrestling fan and I wanted to see it. So I was kind of aware of the Ken Shamrocks of the world at that, that point in time. Uh, yeah, maybe they had the same deal uh, with your library. My local library definitely didn't have that <laughs> stuff, unfortunately, and it didn't have any WCW either, which my uh, my local video shop was full of too. Um, but quickly, I'm sorry before we go into the main event, but what did they want actually give that as a star rating? I gave it three point two five. Which feels a bit high, considering what we've just slated it. But I think it's expectation. I think I expected it to. You would have expected it to be this big match, and I think it's disappointing for what it should be. But I also didn't particularly think it was bad. I had a good time watching it. It's probably to to explain my route. I'd say it's up there with the opening matches, and so I gave it two and a half. Well, I I went three, mm. two. Fair enough. Wow. It wasn't good. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to argue you too strongly because I can't, uh, can't see that. Um, right, so yeah, following that, we got the uh, the weird Fozzie turn that... Fozzie turn? Uh, Fonzie turn that made uh, made no sense whatsoever with his uh, with his Sabu t-shirt on. Uh, yeah, odd one. Uh, probably just put Sabu over if you're going to do that, lads. But anywho, we then went on to our... Really, it's one match. Our main event, uh, which is two matches. It's the number one contender match and then Raven coming in for like a 10-second title match. Um, again, I wonder if I'd have gone... I think maybe I, I would have gone off the air with Taz and Sabu, but in hindsight, actually, the Terry Funk moment's a lot bigger, um, even if the match didn't feel as, as big to me uh, around the time. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. This is one where it's... This is very ECW. It's not really a star ratings yeah. match, is it? It's 
I, I enjoy I really like Stevie Richards in this period. I thought the BWO were really cool at the time, even if they seem a bit lame watching it back in time. Now, Sandman was, you know, he's an entrance. That's what he is. Um, and it's always fucking cool to get to see him. Even if you're watching this show, knowing there's not much time left on the tape, knowing there's not much time left on pay-per-view, and thinking, fucking hell, Sandy, get to the ring, will you? I'm sure Paul Heyman was thinking that backstage. And the Terry Funk, you know, he's a dying old man story that, again, they'd hammered home on the TVs around this time did connect with me as well despite the fact to be fair he's only 53 you know they make out like he's 85 taking these books <laughs> i mean he's what two years older than triple h is now um but he plays an old Jesus. man really well uh which yeah, i know it's crazy that it is i was kind of hoping they'd be the same age but no there's uh, there's still two years in it um but yeah you know he came across as this great sympathetic old man Again, I had a good time watching it because I enjoy those characters. I enjoy the Raven character, even though we don't get to to see too much of him. But it, it's not really as far as star ratings go. Unless uh, Dangerous Spots with Ladders are your thing, you're probably, probably not going to go particularly high on this one. And it's probably fair to say it's another disappointment, really, considering uh, it being the main events of the uh, the first ECW pay-per-view. I think, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Benno. This is just ECW summed up in a match, isn't it? Loads mm. of sort of like ladders, Terry Funk doing moonsaults and doing that ladder spin thing that he always used to do. And the Sandman's entrance, I mean, of all the things 1PW did that were terrible, but bringing Sandman in and they had an afternoon Q&A session, which was taken over by Sandman being pissed up and just walking around the room going, oh, so what's it like living in South Yorkshire and blah, blah, blah. With Loki behind the desk looking like he wanted to beat the fuck out of him. <laughs> it was hilarious. But then come the evening show, they had a, a match between Sandman and Raven, and um, the place was packed out, 2,000 people. Sandman came out, did his full entrance, beers, Singapore cane, climbing all over the Doncaster Dome, and I absolutely loved every minute of it. And um, yeah, I had um, some some fond memories of that, and definitely fond memories of seeing his entrance here, because it's like you say, you might have just been an entrance, but what an entrance it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm glad, again, JP got us a hooky coffee because I couldn't have watched this without proper Enter Sandman. No. Um, although, isn't there a Metallica version and a Motorhead version? Don't they flip between the two? They used, I think they used the Motorhead version on some of the tapes later, didn't they? I was right. reading that they dubbed it on or something. Okay, because this felt legit. I thought this was the Metallica version. Am I right? This was the Metallica one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. but yeah. Hell of an entrance. Doing the B again before Steve Austin. You know, Trendsetter is our Sandman. But yeah, that's... That's pretty much all he is, isn't it? And don't forget the giant smoking around that time as well. Oh, of course. They, of course. Took the they took that from him as well, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Joe JP, any any particular notes on this match slash kind of big angle that these last two matches are? Uh, I kind of enjoyed it for what it was. If I, I did too. I did too. It's a kind of fun mess. And I like Terry Funk. I've always been a Terry Funk fan. Uh, there's like, like he knows how to engage a crowd. He knows what to do to get over his wrestling brain. It's kind of clear watching him here, just what a smart worker he was. Uh, but also how he understood how to change with the times. How he understood the, the change in fan base, if anything, as well, and the change mm. in style. It's even bits like where he does that moonsault. It, like that's an emotional big moment in the match. Like uh, you know, there was bits of like that, that I really enjoyed. Like he reminds me of someone like uh, like I was trying to think of who he reminds me of, but he's like a. Uh, a guy who was like a bit of an A-lister at one point as an actor, but then kind of recreated himself and was doing a small, a fair few smaller like independent films, but also doing a few kind of like 
acting jobs where he'd get a decent payday. Something like maybe a Harry Dean Stanton or someone, possibly. <laughs> Henry <laughs> Winkler. Yeah. Keeper yeah. Sutherland in the 90s before 24 came along. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Someone like that. Or that, isn't he doing that designated survivor show now, Kiefer, on uh, Netflix? Oh, or... yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he loves a series, does Kiefer Sutherland, where he basically plays the same character. And but the voice yeah. of uh, Solid Snake in Metal Gear Solid. Who, oh. Kiefer Sutherland? In uh, Metal Gear Solid 5, yeah. Oh, right. Interesting. But yeah, he's kind of got that. Um, kind of history with him that he wears very well. Like Heyman had bored into it very nicely. It was kind of like his passion project, this storyline. So I liked it from that point of view. But one of the other things I came out of this thinking was like risk assessments in the uh, New Albrahma Arena, whatever it's called. They must have been at an absolute minimum at this point in time. Like that spot where the Sandman flips that ladder and it looks like it falls into the crowd. Jesus Christ. Like, like, Having a bloke out there pissed as part of his gimmick seems great, but in practice, fuck me. Like, it, it, it's questionable, put it that way. Like, watching this as well, at times I was thinking to myself, like, the obvious comparisons are going to be, like, the GCWs of this world. But I was thinking, like, Fight Club Pro is like a woke ECW in many ways, <laughs> to some extent. Like it's kind of they're kind of going for that vibe, but it's all very nice and it's all very sort of controlled and policed, if anything. But ACW was better for it, if you ask me. But yeah, I kind of enjoyed the match for what it was, and it was a good lead in to where it went. But what I would say is it didn't build to the pinfalls very well. Does no. he have a problem I have of ECW? Like you know, NXT have taken scripted match structure to different levels at this point, and you know it feels like it's too much, but. That maybe could have been a little bit more here, I thought, because it didn't. Like, Stephen Richards was pinned. It was like, oh, like, is he out? Yeah. And then Kills the, the match as well, like, just, I think. That's where the match goes yeah, down. Yeah. And then the Sandman pin just sort of happens, doesn't it? So, mm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd agree with those. It, it's an absolute. That first part, I think I gave it three stars because mm. it's kind of like you say, it's just an enjoyable mess. It, and it's just all over the fucking shop. Uh, Tommy Dreamer, I don't know if you've mentioned him, he's completely non-existent on commentary. During, <laughs> he's like, taking a role in JP. He's very serious. And there's a point where Joey asks him a question and he says, like, I can't talk at the minute. I'm, I'm, I'm too emotional. I'm just like, <laughs> Great to see Terry... Bueller come out, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she gets, yeah, she gets, she gets some chance as well. Um, just from and... you? <laughs> no, not from me. I was never as much of a Bueller fan, oh, to be honest with you. Give him you more a role. And I always, yeah. Definitely, and uh, and it was it was the fact actually I've got a really soft spot for the match has with Fonzie, which again kind of enters into the folklore of ECW. Yeah, yeah, it's like a bloodbath, right? Mm. It is, and he was going to be uh, he was going to be sacked and the rest of it, and then mm. he put in this performance, saved his job, and you're like, really? Like the Drake Maverick of his day, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, and like that storyline, it feels like bullshit as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it was like for what it was. I mean. It, incredibly fucking dangerous like joe says not a risk assessment in sight no when he when you see the bit with funk swinging round with the ladder on his head and you're just watching the ladder fucking twat sandman in the head which is a common theme on these shows of this drunk man getting leathered in the brain with a piece of metal at some point uh, it's it's no surprise joe that it leads up to the to the third match they have on pay-per-view which is so fucking bad between him and sabu that they have to pre-tape 
on the next pay-per-view their match because they're not sure that it's going to kind of work. It's, yeah, Sandman, like you say, it's an entrance, but fuck me, a liability at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, to be fair, you know, the match that follows it, it's just the same match continued, isn't it? Just, albeit very rushed, like, this is where the panic sets in, and there's literally yeah. a point where Raven needs Tommy Dreamer to get in the ring to do the, the closing spot of the match, and you can see Todd Gordon on the outside screaming at Raven. Raven seems to have entirely broken kayfabe and looks like he's just shouting at Tommy to get in the <laughs> ring, um, who does come in, and then it looks like they, they do like a, it's like a DDT spot, isn't it? And then Funk rolls over to get the pin. Uh, if it, it feels like Todd Gordon or somebody at ringside just fucking ring the bell, it's over. But the kick, he kicks out still, um, and then it's the it's the roll up for the for the actual finish, isn't it? Which I think kills the drama a little bit because it gives away what yeah. the finish was going to be. Uh, and I think just everybody had panicked and they just knew there was like 30 seconds to go before the paper was going off the air. It was a bit like um, on the original All In when uh, when the Young Bucks had that main event with Rey Mysterio <laughs> and Phoenix and it, it literally, they, they do like a 20 minute match in about four minutes and they're literally breaking Cray Fabe and screaming at each other to get back in the ring and the ref's losing his mind because the thing just needs to fucking end before the pay-per-view ends. That's what this is, isn't it? It's like the uh, the original version of that, although it is, to be fair, a great moment when, when Teddy Funk does get the win in the end. Did you not feel like all the run-ins, though, kind of like dilute his big moment at the end? For that last 10 minutes, the sort of second match of the main event, there's way too many run-ins, I think. That's true. And who are half the people running in? Like, who was the mm. woman who ran in and power bombed Ter- Terry Funk? I was like, who is this? Like, I don't remember this person at all. Like, it feels like the original Ravens flock, if anything, they just stood around <laughs> ringside. Like, who are they? JP? <laughs> I was just actually trying to work out who they were. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't remember at all. Yeah. Um, it's just. Big Dick Dudley gets involved. Reggie. Reggie. Oh, Reggie. Yeah. Reggie Bennett. Yeah, who is that? Not a fucking Scooby. Not a clue. <laughs> Sorry. It's not like you're back in that club in North London now, JP, using <laughs> like that. Sorry. I saw Jeez. Big Dick Duckley. Big, Big Dick Dudley. That's a mouthful. <laughs> oh, she <laughs> wrestled in all... It's a... She wrestled in all Japan women. Um... <laughs> She did. In, I'm in surprised you know she was then, mate. I know you're big into your old All Japan women tapes, aren't you? Oh, massive. Yeah, well, she dra- she married a Japanese musician named Ken- Kenji Ishihara in August 2000. Okay, cool. Yeah, did a bit of mixed martial arts. <laughs> Good to Why know. she's here makes no sense. I don't know. Yeah. Like, was there any relationship with Raven that they built to or anything? Was it like something that had been featured on the show at the time? Well, no, because he's gone pretty soon after. Yeah. Uh, bizarre. I've but just looked it up now. Apparently, she was Raven's neighbor. So that's why she was involved. <laughs> what? what that? Like, as in, she was Scott Levy's neighbor. Yeah. She was like, right. Okay. I mean, would you do that? Would you get. No, I don't know what your neighbors are like. Would you get well, your neighbors to join? Like... Yeah, I do. Would you get them to join in on a podcast to live next door and they can uh, talk? No. No. Well, I want them to ever hear this, mate, because I've slagged them off plenty of times. <laughs> Knowing what the bloke next door's like, he reminds me of one of those blokes who might have been in London at the weekend, honestly. Uh, <laughs> so, no, I wouldn't. Oh, amazing. Um, and an update, sorry about this, she's divorced. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thanks for the stats. <laughs> Important there stuff, JP. Go. That's the trivia people come exactly. to listen to this for. Um, Hi. Did, did anybody give the second part of the match? I haven't even rated it on Grapple because I didn't really see it as a match. Um, I'd give the overall presentation Sorry, three. the whole package, really. Yeah, I'd give mm. the whole package three stars, maybe even 3.25 because mm, yeah. I did have a good time. Even though it's a mess, as I think we've all kind of said, but yeah, you can't really rate that Kanye as a as a, as much of a main event. No, no. It's definitely three stars. Mm, that's it. Yeah, I went three stars in the first bit, two stars in the second. But you're right, three stars. Yeah. Did you see Big Dick Dudley to go back to him after my? <laughs> yeah. You're obsessed. <laughs> I know. But well, I could <laughs> even link it in. He was a big part of them. Well, he just got out of prison, apparently, like the week before this show. Wow. Yeah. Like, what was he in prison for? Anyone know? JP? Uh, <laughs> find out. There we go. Give us a second. JP doing the research live here. Um, but they kind of fuck that spot as well, don't they? Where Dream I know he's there. dead. Died of Is he? Failure. Yeah. Mm, right. Personal life. He, uh, do you remember Electra from ECW? He was yes. married to her. He did all right, there it you? was. Uh, what did he do in it? Oh, he was known uh, as a reputation of being a legitimate badass. He um, really claims to have seen him beat five people up and known in a nightclub in Long Island, known to have a dead hand due to nerve damage from putting it through a plate glass window. Oh, God. <laughs> Must have inspired Goldberg. Yeah, I was going to say, um, yeah. See, ECW, inspiring he wrestling. He was found dead in his apartment due to kidney failure. Nothing about prison. Mm. Let me look into it. <laughs> okay, keep us updated, Jeffy. He sounds like someone from Oz. He'd have made a great Oz character. Oh, I think a lot of this this locker room would have been a good uh, drama show. Just the backstage maneuverings and New York Gang versus the Philly Gang and the drugs and the the sex and the the deaths. <laughs> very much just Tommy like... Tommy Dreamer in the Beecher role. Oh, that'd work. That'd work. He he's very likable, Tommy Dreamer. We didn't really get the chance to talk about him much, but I always liked him in uh, ECW. He worked as like the uh, as the baby yeah. face of the promotion. Um, I don't know. That, I mean, on the sh- and he, and oh, he didn't have an ego as well about putting people over. That was one of the things I have to say about about Dreamer. Probably because he didn't deserve to have one, but <laughs> at least he acknowledged that. Unlike a lot of the other wrestlers, I think he, uh, he knew his place, didn't he? Um, but yeah, what, what 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 did we make as the show overall? And I mean, <laughs> watching it back, it's not the, the best show to watch back, but I enjoyed the trip down memory lane. I enjoyed seeing the characters again. I enjoyed the atmosphere, the music, the feel of the time. Uh, even if yet maybe from a, a bell-to-bell point of view, as with most ECW, it doesn't really hold up. Yeah, same as you, Ben. I completely agree. Just a nice trip down memory lane. You know, fun to watch this, but I wouldn't run out and watch a load of ECW shows in a row. Uh, not like JP, but... Um, <laughs> we'll and, there are, and like we said, there are better shows from sort of like the late 90s, early 2000s that they did. Um, yeah, I wouldn't mind revisiting Heatwave 98 because I remember it did get tons of really good reviews at the time. Mm. Oh, we'll have to do 98 at some point, definitely. Um, how about you two? What did you make of this as a show? I thought it was a really good insight into kind of the wrestling world at this point in time. Uh, and it does sort of show you where wrestling was going. But as Martin said about ECW almost peaking just before this, it feels like that kind of like what they've done on the underground is slowly transitioning into the mainstream. And you can very much see that trajectory when watching this. And what I found really interesting as well is, I'm not going to go into detail about it, but in a week where there's been a lot of uh, news based around various TV shows from the past being censored Mm. in quite a sort of irrational way, 
it, I've I've always said that I I don't agree with that happening because like television and film from a time period is a great insight as to kind of cultural norms and what was culturally acceptable during a point in time. Mm. And you look at this, and a lot of this now would not be in any way acceptable if it was booked. So it's great to look back at it and kind of realise what that time period was, what the world was at that point in time. And you think about what it's brought up around, I don't know, JP bringing up Loaded, for example, and the chance to Francine. Like, it shows you that we've moved on in the way that we kind of represent women and respect women in many ways and it shows you as well that wrestling styles have moved on in the US as well and you know I always like looking back on stuff to get that little bit of insight so you can sort of see what this was influenced by but also what it shaped afterwards as well and it was clearly majorly influential on what WWF was to become and that WWF boom period if anything mm. Yeah, that time period where uh, Pot Noodle were quite happy to advertise their slag, um, their uh, their main seller as the slag of all snacks. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. And do you remember that bit in the League of Gentlemen? JP does. He brings it up a lot. Where um, oh, what's the guy's name? Is that Perver guy in the League of Gentlemen? He <laughs> puts... he owns the shop. Yeah. Son. yeah JP, describe shop. it. You'll do a better job than me. There's a bit. I always remember he's watching, he's renting out rooms and he's watching all these people on CCTV and he just empties a pot noodle out onto a plate and then just unbuckles his trousers. <laughs> and that's where it cut. And it's one of the bleakest images. And that has stuck with me as a joke and a test to for far too long in my life. I bet your neighbour loves a pot noodle, Joe. <laughs> Benno does. I know that for certain. And a Yorkie. <laughs> And a packer of McCoys. All the men's snacks, they're all the best stuff. Uh, exactly. They were the good old days, lads, back when uh, yeah, you could you could call your snacks sexist names. Uh, I, I, I have a can I, of tango on the side as well. Oh, yeah, <laughs> with the tango slap. Oh, uh, my God, that was brutal, that was. Yeah. Uh, just to, yeah, just to say with this, I mean, it's kind of, it's an important show because it is that sort of moment in time of where the wrestling industry was, where culture was. It's like a lot of the things that, that Joe was saying before. But knowing, going back and watched it, and there's been various times, like when I first got a subscription to the network, I went back and watched some ECW stuff and thinking, this doesn't hold up at all. It's an enjoyable nostalgia trip, but it really doesn't hold up from a, from a kind of wrestling perspective. And, but it is still important for that. And mm. it's important to kind of view it in the context of its time mm. and what it is and what it led to. And then you kind of get the kind, you know, and then you, like you say, where American wrestling has really improved substantially for the better in many ways from that, in terms of taking the kind of good things out of, like you think of what Ring of Honor learned from having the Dragon Gate guys, Dragon Gate guys <laughs> over. That sounded homophobic and I really didn't mean it. It's Sorry. late. We'll wait until the show, JP. No one's made it this far. Reading JP. <laughs> exactly what? Going back to sort of like mid nineties viewpoints now, is that what you're expecting? Well, mate, you're getting your boxes loaded with your Nell McAndrews of this world oh, out again, aren't not you? For and me. Your Victoria Silvsteads, you know, trip down memory lane for you. Yeah, people banging on about Gillian Anderson probably around that fucking. <laughs> um, you didn't agree with her ranking in the FHM 100 sexiest women then in night. <laughs> I never felt that strongly about it, but there were people who would live and die by that. It seemed remarkable. 
Uh, what it, would you say though is regarded or in your opinion is the best ECW match of all time I would say Rob Van Dam, Jerry Lynn it'd be hard to pick one but maybe maybe Living Dangerously 99 and to be honest it's more series of matches for me it's either their series or Masato Tanaka Mike Awesome series or even maybe mm. Super Crazy and Tajiri's series it's hard to pick an individual one I don't know maybe JP's got a better shout no, but just before you say that, JP, as much as the peak of ECW might be, have been in sort of like 94 to 96, all the best matches that people do remember, not the storylines or the angles necessarily, but all the best matches are from that later time period, aren't they, 99, 2000? Yeah. I was going to say, the three that kind of stick out in my head is, head, is I can't fucking talk, it's gone, is um, Rob Van Dam, Jerry Lynn, Super crazy Tajiri, Mike Awesome, Masato Tanaka. There you go, yes, yes. And they're, they're kind of like the big three series. I've got nostalgia for other ones, but I don't think they would hold up. Eddie Dean, uh, maybe. Ray and Eddie have one as well. Yeah, Ray, Eddie, Eddie Dean. Two called Scorpio, I think, had some decent matches mm-hmm. when he was there in sort of, was it 94, 95 he yep. was there? There's a two called Scorpio, Eddie Guerrero match I remember really liking uh, that I watched, well, it would have been years ago now. Uh, I think there's a Jericho two called Scorpio match that I think is pretty good as well. Like, I've not seen him in a long time, but that Jerry Lynn RVD match as well. I remember they had a match on Heat. I remember I was on holiday with my parents in Wales in some cottage, like kind of bored. And it was during the invasion and heat was on late at night. And I remember they did an RVD Jerry Lynn match on heat. And my mind was kind of blown by it because it wasn't what you were seeing in WWF at that point in time. I remember doing some reading afterwards and finding out about all the stuff in ECW and actually watching those matches and kind of being blown away by that first one that I saw between them um, and I think that is the one that sort of was spoken about quite a lot on the internet when I was first using forums and stuff but I've not seen it in years and I wonder whether they'd hold up now at this point in time have you ever any of you guys seen it in the last couple of years no it's been oh. a few for me We'll be getting round to it. it. I can't say we're avoiding it in 99. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we could do 99 at some point, I guess. 98's got to be done. Like, got to be. Uh, Yeah, definitely WCW in 98. Some classic stuff in there. Yeah. I also want to make a request for King of the Ring 98 as well. Ooh, that's a good shout to jump in with WWE. There you go. It's it's right in itself. There you go. It's sad up. Speaking of 1998... This podcast is dark, isn't it? That's it. Well, speaking of 1998... It didn't. Um, it didn't come up naturally, JP. But you didn't tell us just before we go, and we we will go soon because uh, Paul yeah. Martin's got to be up in four and a half hours. Uh, the, <laughs> the life of working in the NHS, mate. You're a, you're a trooper for staying up with us. But I've got to ask, like, what... should we give him a clap? <laughs> oh, yeah. Give me a clap for the hero that I am. <laughs> <laughs> Every night at midnight. Uh, but I was going to say, JP, what was uh, what was that being a big ECW fan in this period? What was it like actually getting to see them finally live uh, a year later? I kind of lost my shit. Mm. I convinced myself, because this is how naive I was. I thought, oh, they, they, they were doing a storyline with Tommy Dreamer. And I thought, I'd kind of make sense if he was here. Why the fuck would he be in Walthamstow in February 98? There's no reason at all in that. Mikey Rip, Whipwreck was on that show as well. Um, Me and Martin saw him wrestle a couple of years ago, didn't we, Martin? Oh, is that yeah, was was oh, was, yes, he, I remember. He, he was it looks completely different now, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he was quite good in the clusterfuck on mm. spring break, massively overweight. But 
Yeah. Sorry, JP. It was really hard to tell who was coming out for that clusterfuck, wasn't it? Because you couldn't even hear the ring announcer. or And if you couldn't tell their theme music, you couldn't tell who was coming into the match. And I was incredibly jet-lagged and falling asleep at the same yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> I think this show is on YouTube, this one in this one in 98, if you ever wanted to go back and revisit it. Can you see you in the crowd? You might be able to see me. I haven't gone back and watched it all, but yeah, you, can de- you, you should be able to see me. It's only 220 people there, according to Cage Match, so I'm kind of assuming that's the case. Um, I remember Mikey Whipwreck heavily selling his knee and thinking, oh, he's doing that really well. And then afterwards, speaking to John Lister and Rob Butcher, actually seeing Rob Butcher, like these kind of mythical figures. Wow. Um, <laughs> How did you know they were? Well, John Lister, because of um, he'd written pieces before. He had long hair. He had the ponytail like he did in um, Beyond the Mat. And he got the he get, getting the tube back. Um, and he was on there. He was a really, really nice guy. Um, Rob Butcher, Martin says it, not interested in wrestling. He kind of looked that way as well. Um, it was a fucking giggle. All Furman really stood out. And I think he got an ECW date on the back of that as well at one point in, in 98. As a show, Dirt Bike Kid makes it about himself. They have some tournament for him. And I remember asking, oh, the EWA promoting anywhere else? And it's just like, whenever Dirt Bike Kid books a promotion. I was, I was so clueless to what was going on. And then in the queues outside, there was some bloke talking about, um, oh, what was it? Mr. Pogo. Um, and the kind of all the Japanese deathmatch lads. And he was doing it in a more geezery accent than me. <laughs> he's like yeah love a bit of Tarzan go oh me you know, <laughs> that sounds like our impression of you <laughs> that's pretty much what it is it's become a parody of myself copies um, on indie wrestling or Japanese wrestling of the 90s is just is about as niche as it gets really isn't it it really felt that way it felt like my people though Joe and yeah. there was a bloke and there was a bloke who I was in school with um, in sick form who was there who I just like, I was stunned he was there. His name was Ravi. And I was like, I never knew he was into wrestling. Shout out to and he Ravi. Sat there, and he sat there with a fucking ECW t-shirt on. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and I didn't talk to him, for shame. Um, what, you didn't talk to him at the show? I didn't know. Because I only noticed it. Like, I, I kind of, like, it sounds bad. It's not like we hung out and I thought, hey, he's all right. He'll be doing all right. That sounds awful. <laughs> It was really nice. Were you too cool for him at that point in time? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. But he did have an ECW t shirt. I was jealous of that. This just sounds like a trial run for like 2015 JP going to indie shows again. Like, it just sounds like the same experience. (laughs) Chatting to random journalists on the train, you know, (laughs) little random people you're seeing when you go for a smoke. Like, it just feels like you had like a 15, 17 year break. Uh, mate, it's the story of my life. It's just where I find myself in bizarre situations. Like backstage at a fun-loving criminals gig. That's... I'll save that story for another time. I can oh, just imagine mate. JP like chatting to John Lister though and then looking into the distance and going, is that Ravi? Is that Ravi over there? And John Lister being like, who the fuck is Ravi? I, I, I mentioned it to him when I met him at an attack show and I think he just thought I was a psychopath. Fair enough. Oh, <laughs> uh, amazing. 
See, I thought I went back Happy with John Lister. Time. I used to go to Future Shock shows and, uh, and meet up with him in like 2006. So you got me beat there, JP. Uh, but yeah, all full circle now. We're all friends now. Well, make sure you go out and check out his ECW books. It's yes. easily the best one about ECW, yeah. turning the tables, cracking read, and certainly the best one um, about that whole time period. Yeah, yeah. Quite, quite some margin. Mm. Definitely. Um, anything else then on, on ECW? Uh, 90s days out? Uh, any of the stuff we've talked about today before we go? I'm not. I'm not going to go into it, but Hardcore Heaven '97 is shit. <laughs> JP spent an extra three hours watching that that none of the rest of us watched, yeah. and never planned on watching. Okay, <laughs> shit though. This is not the review. <laughs> the lighting's fucked. <laughs> Can't see anything. It's fucked, and they do a stupid angle involving the Sandman, a helicopter, an ambulance. And he comes back in. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but there you go. Uh, you watch it so we don't have to, JP. That's what we love about you. I'm treating it like Joe would treat my MLW reviews. <laughs> uh, anything else from you, Joe, or should we get out of here? Uh, no, I think I'm done. I, I think JP's sort of peaked this one, hasn't he, with those stories <laughs> there at the end. So. This one's with the JP show. Fantastic. What a performance. Um, but <laughs> anything from you, anything you want to plug in general, BWE, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think we did. We, the show wasn't that great, but I had a great time with obviously you and Jamesy chatting to Andrew Thompson and talking UK Rampage 92. And then discovering a week or so after I'd told him what show we were doing that he was born in 1996. So uh, that was an interesting <laughs> look down memory lane for us old guys and then uh, an interesting look for him at 1992 in WWF. So yeah, go check that out, postwrestling.com. Definitely. Yeah, that was mind-blowing. He would have been, what, one at the time of uh, Bailey Legal. That's just yep. just <laughs> scary. Um, but yeah, obviously, I'll uh, I'll second that plug. Um, JP's Match of the Month with James. He's on the grapple feed at the moment. Uh, our next spotlight will be out in a couple of days as well that people can, uh, can look out for. But yeah, keep an eye on the feed. We'll, uh, we'll be doing some more uh, 90s flashback stuff, so we'll have to uh, go back to the drawing board. Some good ideas there of... Uh, or plans to what to do next so yeah keep an eye out for that follow martin on twitter at bushby01 follow jp at jpjp follow me at benson richie d if you've seen barely legal or any other ecw shows from that period you can uh, you can throw your ratings in on grapple and you can follow grapple at grapple up as well but yeah until next time that's us for another flashback 90s show cheers everyone bye see ya Time to add personality to your office or home. Goat Guns offers a wide range of miniature gun models that are fun to build and display. From desk decorations to conversation starters, our realistic die-cast models are sure to impress. Choose from a vast selection of historic miniature firearms such as AR-15s, AK-47s, and 1911 pistol. We have greatest of all time support and a 90-day buyback guarantee. Order your Goat Gun at GoatGuns.com.